0: Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your, my bald head gets cold, so I bought a cowboy hat host, Cam Harless. And with (laughs) me, as always, is your favorite flat earther, Miss Jessica Green. What? (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing, Jessica? And why do you think the moon is a hologram?
1: Oh, you know, there are reasons. No, I (laughs) think... I, I come on, man! I'm related <laughs> to a physicist. You're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to have stuff to explain at dinner time now. Oh man!
0: Oh, you got to love it. Now, all right. I
1: am excited. I'm excited about tonight. I, th- I I I think we're about to discuss some really interesting ideas. So I'm yeah.
0: I'm eager. Let's go. Eager. Very (laughs) eager. So uh, before we get started, I do want to tell you that this show is 100% brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe, share the show with your friends. We've done all sorts of topics and, you know, share them with someone that you think might gain something from them. Also, join our Patreon for the occasional early episode. We'll we'll have Zoom hangouts and uh, I'll be grateful. Jessica will be grateful and we'll tell you that we're grateful. And I mean, what more could you ask for? Uh, You can also grab a shirt, a mug. Or a tank top, which is the preferred shirt of the Mad Ones, over at wearethemadones.com store, and you can show off our logo anywhere you go. But let's get to the the, the meat and potatoes, as it were. Uh, joining tonight is the host of A Neighbor's Choice. He's a seed oil disrespecter, a fan of physics, a marketer of mimetic theory, and a proponent of Jesus's personhood revolution, Mr. David Gornoski. Gron- I can't speak. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
2: Well, so so glad to be with you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here.
2: And before oh, yeah. the show, I just realized that we're we're just down the road from each other, Cam. It's so great to know that. Won't you be my neighbor, huh?
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I I didn't expect because I'd seen you at an event, I think, in Tampa, and and I was like, so when I saw your picture on Twitter, I was like, I've met this guy. I know I've been in the same room with this person before. And he, you asked me where I live, and I I, I told you. A specific city, which I'm not going to tell everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're like, yeah, you're just down the road. So yeah. that's cool. You know, maybe there are cool people around here after all.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Jessica, where, where do you hail from? Where are you from?
1: I, I'm in the metro Atlanta area. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, basically... I mean, we're within a stone's throw of each other with with cars yeah, <laughs> within yeah. a car's throw of each other.
2: And how's Atlanta doing? I like that show Atlanta. That's a pretty surreal show. I like the FX show.
1: You know, I do my best to stay on the outskirts of the city area uh, for the most part. I uh, I prefer it out in the country and uh, we're, you know, doing our best to avoid the sprawl as, you know, California, New York and every other overpopulated place is kind of pouring into our area. The locals wow. are fleeing and, and and trying to get out to the country, so
2: we need to have some kind of way of debugging these folks that come over to these uh, failing states so that they can get debugged and ready to go for with a proper mind and a proper meal you know.
1: So I was told a lot of the people who come, especially from L.A. and New York, they don't want to lose their street cred as an L.A. or New York person. So they refuse to get their licenses changed over to Georgia licenses for as mm-hmm. long as they possibly can, which, you know, kind of keeps them out of the voter pool. And I'm sort of cool with that. Because it's a, you
2: know, so they're like they're like L.A. people living in exile.
0: Yeah. Amongst yeah. The yeah. And, and the savages. Right. That's
1: what <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some who see it that way for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Savage Atlantans with their chicken chicken bones all over the ground.
1: I I try to warn them when they come in that you might see chicken bones. <laughs> there are a lot of chicken bones. I don't I wasn't making it up.
2: <laughs> are they doing hexes or something with them?
1: No, no. I think people just um it's something I, I came from Florida originally. So when I moved up to Atlanta, I just noticed like, hey, there's an awful lot of like bones on the sidewalk. And it's just something that it seems to be unique to the city of Atlanta that people eat. <laughs> their chicken and throw the bones aside. And um, Mm. I told my friend who came from L.A. that she would see that and that's how she would know she was in Atlanta. She sent me a picture of a bone, her first bone that she saw. And she's like, I thought you were making that up. Mm. And i was like, why how how or why would I come up with that story?
0: So, you know, (laughs) it's you know, it's also happens to be unique to Georgia is um, every now and then they find like the last time it happened was two years ago. Where the um what river is it the Chattahoochee River mm-hmm. um they find uh, decapitated goat bodies
1: oh that's like two hundred
0: like what Santeria that, is this
1: <laughs> that might have something to do with taxes. I can't speak to
2: <laughs> well you guys are doing a perfect um, transition for our topic today about sacrifice a lovely topic there
0: yeah, yeah let's talk about goats yeah, I was thinking
2: about that I was like man you know. Atlanta may have chicken bones everywhere, but LA probably has got human bones just sitting on the sidewalk everywhere with everything declining so rapidly as it's been, huh? Goodness. Might
0: be, might be. And, and and of course, you know, uh, intravenous needles. Mm. Oh,
1: that, yeah, that too. Yeah. I'm, I'm less, somehow I'm less um, offended by the idea of the needles. Like I'm, I'm desensitized to that imagery, but the idea of the bones is much more like, oh, I don't know why. <laughs>
0: Goat bodies is just yeah. incredible. Yeah,
1: life. that's like
0: two hundred. Yep. So there, it's. I do think that's the best segue I could have ever come up with. By the way, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I just, I nailed that, and I should pat myself on the back and then say, hey, let's <laughs> talk about goats.
2: <laughs> right.
0: Let's talk about sca- scapegoats. So you have a show called A Neighbor's Choice. Tell right. Can you tell us about what you do and. And you- yeah,
2: we do a, uh, it's a live old school FM AM radio show that we do feature, um, online as well as a podcast and a live stream. But our primary focus is doing the radio medium justice because it's a totally underutilized, underappreciated, uh, medium to use, you know, to tell interesting stories in a live way. And, um, so I've been doing that for a few years, and it's a, a drive-time show from 5 to 7 p.m. Uh, weekdays. Um, we Each week, we've been doing this new format where one day a week, Jeff Dice, the president of the Mises Institute, guest hosts a show of mine with his uh, all-star lineup of Mises people. And I wanted to do that because a lot of the economic declines that we're seeing, I wanted to give people – a real heavy, you know, because when you're in broadcast media, you're preaching to a different audience than a podcast, right? Because podcasts, typically people found you because they have a name or a topic that they're looking for that you're related to. But when you're doing broadcast, you don't know who you're going to catch. It's like you're casting out a big net and you're going to get people who don't know anything about Joe Rogan or who that is or whatever. So it's a whole new world out there. And I thought, you know, now with the economic decline and everything, let's give a broadcast mainstream normie audience a heavy dose of economic, uh, education each week with Jeff and his friends. So that's been a really great thing to see that. Um, but yeah, we, we do a live show. Then I also do a, a deep dive anthropology show called things hidden, um, which I do about one of those a week, um, online. So yeah, it's a podcast and a radio show. Um, And it's been a lot of fun uh, taking the headlines of our time, the current events, the news going on in the world, and then using history and anthropology as like a special toolkit in your back pocket to be able to understand, okay, so this isn't just a random thing. There's a reason why this is happening. And if you understand the the historical trajectory we're on, then you can kind of have, you can see intelligence in what's happening. You know, you kind of figure out, okay, this makes sense now. This is not just random chaos.
1: Right, right. That's um, I first encountered the idea of mimetic theory from you in twenty nineteen. I heard you on Bob Murphy's show and it was one of those ideas that kind of like this really alters my perspective on the way that I had, you know, in, in read a lot of. You know, you have to contextualize the Bible when you read it, but it's so much more than just contextualization. It's like intent is also what is the intent of the Bible? And I had never been exposed to an idea like that before. Um, the idea of mimetic theory coming from Rene Girard, you recommended a CBC interview by Rene Girard. I forget the host name. I'm so sorry to him that I forgot David him.
2: Keeley? yeah.
1: Thank you. He did such a great job and it's not fair to forget him <laughs> in this moment. But um, that interview, I recommend everybody to watch if anything that we're going to talk about might seem a little bit like I've never heard these terms before. Um, But I thought that it was extraordinary. And I'm so excited to talk about it because at the time when I heard that idea, I was still very much in sort of like an atheistic, secular kind of camp ideologically. Like, and it gave me an opportunity that came in confluence with the time that I was becoming disillusioned with my political ideas. Like right at the exact moment, it was like a lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. struck me with that and I was like this is so interesting and I'm it's surreal to be able to this is many years on now from 2019 believe it or not we've progressed in time and I'm actually able to talk to you about these ideas and I wanted you to know how like, truly excited I am about that
2: well thank you yeah it's a Mm -hmm. it's a big transformative thing for me you know when I was um, when I discovered Ron Paul uh, and I accepted capitalism into my heart many years ago and, uh, and, uh, 2007 in that original campaign, that was a big moment for me because at the time they had these ideas that we weren't allowed to know about, like the federal reserve and national ID and all these things. He was talking about globalism before anybody was talking about it. I mean, Pat Buchanan and all that, but that was before my time. Uh, and so Ron Paul wakes me up to this. And then the next big wake up moment I had was Rene Girard, you know, so it's something about these people with, uh, two first names as a name, you know, that they They're always around the same age, like that guru age. And it happens like every 10 years or something. I don't know who the next guru is. I just interviewed a guy that I've been getting to know for some time, a little bit in recent years. He's 86. His name's Dr. Ray P also two first names. And he has a revolutionary approach about seed oils. And I'm like, maybe that's the next moment. So it's Ron Paul, then Renee Roy, then Ray P. I don't know, but <laughs> you know, just you look at the rhythms in your life and try to make sense of it all. But, yeah, I mean, Rene Girard um, revolutionized my uh, perspective in a lot of ways because I, I always felt like, um, you know, the way in which Christianity is talked about within a lot of Christian circles is kind of like a disembodied, just another deity. Like, you're supposed to figure out, all right, tell me who the God is. Okay, you've made a case that it's this guy, not that one. Okay. And who do I say my prayers to at night? Okay, that one? Okay. And so you Mm -hmm. just kind of like, all right, it's Jesus. All right, I'll take that one. Sounds like that's the big, uh, best option I've been persuaded to uh, assent mentally to, right? And that ends up being how Christianity is presented in a lot of ways. I don't think it's necessarily at all what Jesus had in mind. Um, And there's a lot of ways to look at this. But one way to think about it is, um, you know, Jesus changed the world, whether you believe in him or not. He's saving you in sense of you all. He's saving you all, the world, whether you believe certain things about him or not. Right. And the way in which Jesus has been taught in a popular sense in America, at least, has been almost in a metaphor I've used is like, or analogy is like telling uh, young black children that the only way in which they can receive the benefits of Martin Luther King's impact in their life is is if they believe he existed and they believe he did certain things and then and only then can you experience the impact and the reality that he left in, in history. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how Jesus is taught. But we know that whether you know about Martin Luther King or not, you get to drink at the same water fountain. There is no segregation at the water fountain, right? You don't have to believe something to participate in the reality of it. You see what I mean? And, that, and, and so that's yeah. the way, that's the way Jesus has been introduced to people like, He's this little private experience kind of thing that you believe this certain thing, and then you try really hard, and you, in different traditions, have different rituals that you must do. And I'm not against all that per se, but right. the way in which he's explained, it just feels like you've got a collection of of uh, superhero characters like Avengers, and those are different gods, and you pick the one yeah. that <laughs> seems to, you know fit with you the best, um, and then you just take a leap of faith. And then you compartmentalize your faith away from everything else. It's such totally opposite. It's a gnostic kind of different religion, you know.
0: Gnosticism is a, a huge issue in mainstream Christianity, and it's something I've talked about on this show. I think, um, if not, I need to do a full episode on on that somewhat because it's there so many different points in the way we talk about Jesus and theology and ourselves. Our own anthropology is based on. Gnosticism or even just ancient Greek platonic ideas that are mm-hmm. not Jewish or Christian. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 wild to me that we've gotten to that place and how it's the same fights. Like I, I don't know if you have paid too much attention to um social media and particularly TikTok. It's going wild on TikTok. Um, but the um Hebrew roots, the Judaizers, as they were, back in the back in history are back and are telling Christians that they can't be Christians unless they follow the mosaic law. And it's like, Mm -hmm. how are we in this day and age still fighting the same fights that Paul fought?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, that goes to the, um, the, the, the way, you know, this kind of jumping ahead of the story, I guess, if we're going to talk about (laughs) memetic theory. but this, the way that groups, you know, the human beings, we want to be a part of tribes. We, we have our identity in right. tribes and and people feel the need to want to have a tangible objectification of god or and, and that god could be right. the ultimate good that that's mm-hmm. the covid cult has their own objective rituals and things that they can they can say this is what it means to be a good citizen and if you don't right, do right. these things that you're you're on the out group and i think this problem exists in everything including in Jesus's uh, church is that you get this desire to say, you know, I don't like this imitation of Jesus thing. I'd rather fence this off so that I can feel safe psychologically that my tribe is superior. And then I can keep my sense of self intact by coming together in mutually purging and excluding people who violate those certain kind of fencing dogmas that I've put around my team. And that is like a shortcut to that transcendent feeling of oneness that uh, a group and a religion provides. I mean, that's what the word religion means. It means to bind together, right? What, what binds us together? Religions are just the foundation of culture itself. So that's why everything you do has a religion to it. If you like Star Wars, it becomes a religion. If you like skateboarding, it's a religion. If you like fishing, if you like country music, different. And in every within each group, there's constant schisms where people are breaking away from that group and saying, no, we are the pure truth and that is the garbage. And then they schism right. and they break. And it's just continual schism. The reason why it's continual schism is because of what Jesus did in history. Anthropologically, he destroyed the unanimity of of culture. He, he destroyed our ability to bind together in a transcendent oneness that uh, would truly make people feel united and whole and and kind of cathartically relieved of their uh, of their tensions, and so because Jesus destroyed the the pagan sacred, uh, because he destroyed the. Rene Gerard says that religion is the placenta of human beings. That's how we came to be, and and we didn't we don't want to accept that. We want to think religion is kind of like this weird thing that we kind of picked up along the way to to kind of deal with our imagin- imagination and our desire for play and this kind of extra stuff that we added on whenever the thunderbolts came, oh, let's gather around the fire and tell a good story together. That's <laughs> yeah. the way modern anthropology and our modern um, myth that we inherit as modernists, we kind of think of religion like that, kind of a bad habit that has some utility if we want to be nice, like a Jordan Peterson, but is really just kind of, a, a, just kind of superfluous to the true root of who we are. Um, right. And R- R- Gerard just throws that completely out the door and says no religion is the placenta by which we become human and he he would go so far as to say that religion is how we became human it's how we completed our harmonization is is through stumbling into this uh pattern of sacrificial or uh kind of a collective lynching of a common uh threat that somehow has a a marker of difference that stands out from the rest of us in an arbitrary way
1: Because I came to Christianity from a secular point of view, the problem of violence within the context of religion is something that is really important to me. And it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And so what I liked about um, what Gerard had to say was not this sort of like hand waving about how primitive people used to be. And that's why there was violence then and there's not violence now or there's less violence now. And instead, he actually does a sort of like what I believe to be an honest look at the the human condition and addresses there's sort of like an inherent violence in our condition that Mm. takes takes its toll, takes its cycle. And um, I was hoping perhaps, you know, as someone who explores this theory and idea quite a bit over the course of many years and many podcasts, you could maybe enlighten me a little more to these ideas.
0: Yeah, yeah, like if we a primer for those who've for the uninitiated would be nice. Yeah. Well, right, just to address
2: right. that one thing. you what you were saying about the primitive thing is true because when Gerard was looking at anthropology, he's looking at first at, at 19th century anthropologists whose bias at the time would be to do just that to say, Oh, there was the primitive, superstitious stuff, and now we're separate from that in our modern world. Um mm-hmm. and now and then, but when he comes into academia in the 20th century it's going the opposite way, you know, where it's now Rousseauian, the noble savage, everything's perfect in its state of nature, and now we and in our institutions and Christianity and all the things that come with that have kind of corrupted the, the pure human being, right? And so, so there's a bias to say everything's bad, uh, you know, from the Western institutions and patriarchy and Christianity and all these capitalism and colonialism, mm-hmm. all these little things that get added on, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's the accurate thing I think would be to say that, yes, that, that human tendency to sin, the, the systemic sin of society has been with us since the beginning and it's still with us, although it hides itself in, the, in a more creative way now. Right. And right. so, yeah, but you got to start with the foundations of mimetic theory to build that. I don't know how far you want to go with that because you could spend many podcasts on just the first part of mimetic theory about human desire. So how far do you want to go with that part? Versus- the scapegoating part, people, people in yeah. my political podcast friends want to go to the scapegoating really fast. You know, the memetic really? stuff is more, you know,
0: maybe, maybe we can do this more than once and hit it in different parts. Maybe you'd yeah. be interested in, in hitting it again later. Uh, but I, I, I do think, you know, let, let's, let's hit the, the basics. And if we don't yeah. hit scapegoating, I'll just re I'll just rename. No, I won't rename the episode. I'll just be even more clever with the next one.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just,
0: I just broke my mug. Oh, you were oh I'm and- so
1: sorry. Oh my goodness. Oh no.
0: That's a, <laughs> a blood got, sacrifice to the yeah, past. Doing because, that. that was a good yeah. show and tell
2: visual for what we're doing.
0: What right. on earth? All right. All right. So yeah, let's so, let's, let's there will be Cam blood, bleed. huh? <laughs> <laughs> so while Cam
1: bleeds, um maybe we can get like I guess the, the the primer for the uninitiated, as he was saying about the, the basics of what what is memetic theory? Somebody wandering and hearing that term, not knowing.
0: Oh, I I do believe he is frozen.
1: It's usually me that's frozen. So hooray for me. Oh, are you there, <laughs>
0: there <bye>? Yeah. <laughs> so
2: uh, let's try this again. So memetic theory is uh, a theory created by Rene Girard. He, he passed away in 2015. His last known post in academia was at Stanford where he was most known in America, uh, but he was born in France. Uh, he had a background in, as a historian, he came to America and spent most of his academic career in America at various universities, John Hopkins university. Um, and, uh, but he landed at Stanford and he, he was kind of a throwback to, uh, an older kind of theorist where you try to create a grand unified theory to explain multiple disciplines and multiple facts. And he was, doing that, was that,
0: is it kind of hegelian yeah yeah yeah, like old
2: school where you kind of give a grand unified theory when at the time he's doing this though you know it was in vogue to be very much you know deconstruction and you know granular and you know you know going into uh what does the text reveal about the the reader and all this but he's saying okay what are the patterns and he first starts off with literature he's looking at the grand uh best works of western literature novels he looks at the plays of shakespeare he looks at uh, cervantes he looks at all these different pieces and he sees a common triangular structure to uh, conflict in these different great dramas and he says well what maybe there maybe these great authors that we we carry on through the ages are great because they all stumble upon a a secret of human nature uh, that really hits us at our core and causes us to kind of be shaken and and, right. and and change our perspective and so he looks at that common pattern by looking at the characters and the way they do and he notices that it's kind of a triangular pattern that human beings that these novels show they desire not things uh because of their own objective or uh truly original want for such things they desire things because other people around them are desiring them so they're copying their desires that's where we get the word mimetic. Now mimetic and popular Twitter world becomes mixed up with that word meme, meme theory and mimetic warfare, which is a different topic. I mean, there are some corollary overlap thoughts there, but it's really a different thing. Um, But mimetic comes from that mimesis. And he wanted to use the word mimesis instead of imitation because he wanted to show that it wasn't just row imitation like we think of, like monkey see, monkey do, you know, you stick your tongue at somebody, they stick their tongue back at you. That kind of is what imitation is typically uh, thought of. So he uses the word, the classical word mimesis to indicate desiring what we, we assume other people are trying to desire or acquire. Right. And, and the reason why we desire those things is because our brains, we are hypermimetic. We see mirror neurons showing evidence for this, that when they watch these uh, the subject in the lab, and they perceive somebody else having pain in their knee that the same neural pathway lights up in the person observing the pain in the knee as if it's happening to them. So we have this kind of mirror neuron component that Gerard later on in his career discovered to, to add evidence to his case. But, it, but at the time, they didn't have that kind of research in his purview. He was looking at novels and seeing uh, the kind of uh, mechanistic nature of, of drama so we see this all the time. The classic example, every mimetic theorist will give you, uh, in explaining this is like watching, you know, children in a, in a, uh, toddlers in a, in a, uh, play room. And there's a an assortment of toys and, and one kid picks up one toy, you know, and he was playing with it kind of lackadaisical, doesn't really care about it. And then the other's child wants that toy. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he goes to grab that toy, but, the first child didn't really care about the toy, but now he sees his neighbor really wants it. So now he really wants it back. And so he's going to pull it harder. And then you're stuck in that constant rivalry of who's going to get this object. So there's nothing intrinsic about that toy per se that makes it um, desirable. It's the fact that the model is, is enjoying it that the child says, well, if they like it, I should like it. Um, And that's where that's the truth of, of all of your desires pretty much. I mean, Gerard would say at the needs level uh, for things like surviving, uh, you know, mating, surviving the the thunderstorms, you don't need to imitate someone to get out of the way from rain. You just kind of go, Uh, you know, food, you don't need to imitate, but you just eat. Uh, Of course, mimetic things get layered onto that, right? We get into diets and fashions. So So there's a basic need. And then we add these mimetic wants on top of that, uh, where we get into epidemics of eating disorders like um, um, bulimia, right, or things like that, where we're competing for these, these uh, um, statuses based on diet as a symbol. And and religions use diet as a mimetic kind of policing measure of, you know, this is who we are and this is who our identity is. Um, And that's one of the reasons why governments do that, too, by the way, because they come from religion. Um, but uh, so going back to mimetic theory uh, at the base level it's this idea that that our desires are from outside of us and that in truth our self is not really distinct in and of ourselves it's rather we have multiple selves in relationship with the people we know around us so there's not just David there's David in relationship to this person David in relationship to that person and that yeah. is really where kind of your your' interdividuality is developed. You know, your sense of self is basically an amalgamation of all these different relationships that you kind of accumulate in your life and you kind of create your own kind of narrative to tie it all together, to make sense of who you are and differentiate yourself from others. Um, But that, that line is very much intermingled really. And this is an affront for people who are, you know, modernists because we truly believe in being a special snowflake, you know, and, 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 that whatever you want to do is, is truly good. And you follow the the heart that follow, the dreams of your heart. Um, and you know, that's, you can't go wrong when you're just true to thyself. Well, you know, who, who are you, you know? Um, and how do you know that what you want is truly good for you rather than, are you trying to keep up with people around you? So it's keeping up with the Joneses. This, uh, the Bible condemns this, uh, mimetic desire when it goes in a negative way. The 10th commandment mm-hmm. says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbors this, that, or anything else. But the emphasis is on the neighbor, right? It's not on, it's, it's really, it just kind of basically says, etc belonging to the neighbor. So, the, so the, the neighbor really is what you're desiring. Um, mm-hmm. And really, if you want to get to more of a metaphysical layer to it, it's a desire to be one with your neighbor. You know, if we want to get into the Christian sense of it, we are desiring to be one um, and it's, and we, and, and mimetic desire doesn't inherently have to be a negative thing, but it tends to go negative when we don't have it properly ordered, you know, within a, a proper, in my opinion, a Christian worldview. Um, so that's, that's where you get into negative rivalry. You know, if you go in, if I, if I meet you at a conference, Cam and, um, and at event, I guess we met before, but if we met again, <laughs> And, and and you know, I was rude and you said, hey, man, thanks for coming on my show. And I said, yeah, 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 but uh, acting like I'm better or something or rude. You might give me an indication that you saw that with your body language and you were going to give me a little bit of a, I know what you did there. You're being rude and not nice. And then I'll see that and I'll say, well, see, that's why I'm like that to him. Because, you see, I've confirmed (laughs) myself that he's not so nice after all. And so we always make ourselves feel like we're the victim of a mimetic rivalry. You know, I didn't do it. That person's the rude person. You know, oh, yeah, right. we always, and, and and we always want to make sure that you know we're always protecting our sense of self. Now, I I truly was the one the one wronged here, um, mm-hmm. and and yet it's very hard to recognize that so much of the things that bother us are really a reflection of things about ourselves and people kind of bring that out in us when we when we uh, interact with people. So, uh, part of being a Christian is learning to be humble enough to recognize that so much of the things that you Um, are uh, enthralled by, the things that you're passionate about are really things that you've borrowed from other people. And I think the Bible gives us a clue into that when it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each into our own way. I mean, if you don't recognize you're a sheep, you think you're going to your own way, but you're really not. You're following the sheep in front of you, but you don't know that until you recognize that you are, as a human being, wired like a herd animal for good or bad. It's not a bad thing. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Mimetic. If you use mimesis properly, it's how you build culture. It's how everything gets done that we enjoy. Yeah. I mean, you can't do art. You can't do compositions. You can't do architecture. You can't do language without mimesis. Uh, but there was just,
1: there was an interesting part during that interview where he talked about how art and music had kind of stagnated because everybody was in the search of originality yeah. instead of being willing to be the disciple or the apprentice of a master to explore, like a master teaches an original way, and then the students go and explore the depths of that way. We no longer have students exploring the depths of the ways. We are all in this search to be the great original instead of a student. And that's much to our detriment, much to the detriment of our culture, such as it it is.
0: One one exception to this that I've noticed, because I've I've been reading this book um, called uh, Children of the Apocalypse by a guy named Justin Marler. And as I'm reading it, there have been several um, Orthodox icons. And it strikes me as I look at these Orthodox icons, they never learned how to draw a different face. And so and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but what I'm saying is there seems to be throughout the centuries a respect for the master insofar mm-hmm. as you can look at any Orthodox icon and it looks exactly almost exactly the same mm-hmm. in composition as the one before it. So that is that is a fascinating exception to that rule. And mm-hmm. I, I thought Jessica might appreciate that.
1: I, I do I study Orthodox iconography, actually. So personally, I actually appreciate that. And I have found um, because of that devotion to originality, the individuality of each artist shines through more so because they're in an effort to attain this certain style. And cannot help but um, express their individuality in that attainment. And so I think that that is an interesting exception um, yeah. that I had maybe not thought of. Thank you, Cam. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I was just yeah. I was sitting there reading it and I was like, these faces all look the same. It's so interesting. How do they look the yeah. same from literal, you know, the first century to today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How is that mm-hmm. possible? And so they, I didn't know that would be something to bring up. But there you go. Here's
2: my yeah. two cents. <laughs> well, that's a that's uh you know the the kids on Twitter call that Lindy, right? Where you're supposed to this is something that has passed the the uh, smell test of history and still keeps itself going, right? And that, right. that that was because that was an era where that craft was developed and that tradition has been respected. Um, before we get into the lie of modernism, you know, where we believe that we are self-created beings that are just you know we just are, are just true true um, of founts of desire that should be fully realized in order to find our true bliss And it's a total lie and that's why marriages and families and our, our churches and everything's falling apart because you know we're, we're so hungry to be original that we're not willing to just imitate Jesus. so
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I've
2: tried to approach people to say, you know when I do my show it's not on a religious station it's not a religious show but I try to bring Jesus with new eyes into the context of current events. To let people see, like, look, you've get, the, the the things that Jesus does in the Gospels, uh, the things he does, the, the 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 sermons on the mount. Those are those are not like disconnected from his passion, okay, his death, burial, and resurrection. Right. That is a survival guide for what you will have to do to survive once what he does on the cross is complete. He's giving right. you a blueprint for how you're going to have to function without having absolute chaos um, brought onto your society once he reveals the scapegoat mechanism that he does on the cross. Uh, and so it's not, it's not just a cute little saying that's just tacked on at the beginning. And then there's this terrible story and they don't want to talk about this, but that, you know, everybody in the liberal order wants to talk about the first part, all the things about being nice and things like that. And they, but, but the, you can't separate the two, you know, mm-hmm. it's because the scapegoat mechanism has been destroyed on the cross that you have to, Uh, really sink or swim in history or else you're going to be dissolved. You know, that's why he said, I've come to bring um, peace, but not as the world gives it, right? The peace of the world is founded on a lie. It's founded on murder. It's founded on accusation. And he destroyed that. And and, and, and progressively through history, this is the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating things about the Girardian work. And I know I'm skipping ahead because I started the foundation and now we're doing some of the more, advanced parts of the theory. But it's right. so important for our time to get this stuff out there. Um, is that he, you know, he's he recognized something about texts as a kind they're like on a trajectory. And media works as a way of kind of like revealing the victims in history, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it's so important for us to see that now because we can use media intentionally to give a voice to the victim without keeping the cycle of mimetic rivalry going and accusations and and point finger pointing. Like we can use media in a way that actually is healing and restorative and in keeping of how the gospel texts themselves function, right? Because the gospel texts are a piece of technology and which societies get them are able to use that technology for great advantage. And sometimes they use it for bad things, right? Because the gospel technology allows you to step aside from our primitive, origins of scapegoating and look for other solutions to tensions and problems that arise in society and that's why cultures that are steeped with the gospel longer than others comparatively sometimes can have technological advantages which are then used to exploit other people right because they're they're they've tasted of the technology of the gospel and they're not willing to fully repent as a society and embrace the true message of the gospel but rather would use some of the revealed knowledge in the text in a way that gives them an advantage to persecute other people. Um, That's something that humans have been wrestling with all along through history, and we continue to wrestle with it to this day, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why America feels this need to go around and occupy all these countries like Afghanistan and and, and Ukraine and and teach them their version of the gospel, you know, where, you know, we're going to put George Floyd murals in Kabul. Like, what the heck is that? what what are you doing? this is this is a this is a distortion of the gospel, right? I mean, they're trying they're haunted by their own victims as an empire, but they're going around the world and they're saying, look at, it's kind of like the martyrs or the icons. you know, let's put these martyrs up. See, these are our sacred victims. These are our sacred Christ figures and and you if you can be like us and learn about LGBTQ and put the flag up in Kabul and everything, you can be like us, you can discover the light and it's a, it's a distorted, mutated, uh, form of Christianity that America mm-hmm. is in this revolutionary zeal to spread to everywhere around the globe. Um, Thanks,
0: Woodrow Wilson. Yeah.
1: I I think that was one of the most compelling parts of the mimetic theory um, that I got exposed to during that interview, at least, that there is a tendency in human nature over time, and I think that we in 2022 uh, feel it. There's a tendency toward hostility. And once the common story that we all unite behind, that we all organize behind, doesn't satisfy the majority's need anymore, we do start this cycle of violence. And it was interesting, he talked about Plato sort of like recognizing our tendency toward societal violence, which culminates in the singling out of a single victim to put all of our sins and all of our hostilities and all of our barbarism kind of off onto this person. And then for some reason, peace descends. And there was a recognition by the myth makers that this would happen, but they didn't want that idea to get out. Christ as the anti-myth, that idea compelled me in an extraordinary, I think it's an extraordinary way, extraordinary idea that everything around this centers on, that he actually revealed the secret, the secret to this cycle and maybe more now than ever, because we do seem to be like cresting in the hostility aspect of that cycle is something that people need to hear about because there there was for a time an idea so powerful that it was uniting pretty much the entire world and the benefit to just like the reduction of poverty, the, the lessening of violence was like a hockey stick effect. And that concept was Christianity. It shouldn't have happened and it did. And that's compelling to me so compelling that it pulled me off of like a secular mindset so there's something extremely powerful to this idea and the mm-hmm. pathway that it's taken through history what why are we losing it why are we throwing it away because i as gerard said you can't christ uh, um Criticizing Christianity. Excuse me. Sorry, it took me a minute to get that. You can't Chris, criticize Christianity against anything else except Christianity. It's the standard by which you're criticizing right, it against. Right. Yeah. So you know what? What are we doing? Um, are, are are we really like shutting down the engines of the aircraft that we're in? <laughs> like, in in our current culture, seems to be like let's throw since the Enlightenment, let's throw Christianity out with the bathwater.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, we are in the, the kind of the liberal hegemony of the West is in mimetic rivalry with Jesus, right? It wants to plant Jesus's personhood revolution with its own uh, fraudulent ripoff that will ultimately end in absolute chaos for everyone. And so, because, and so again, we had to go back to, all right, so why do we, how did we get to scapegoating? we had to go back to that just for a little bit for the audience that's new to this. So we have these desires that we catch among us um, and we always want to feel like we're the unique one that's why when you're a kid at least for me everybody wanted to say I was into Star Wars before you I was into that anime show before you guys were or, you know and then everybody gets into I remember there was a phase in middle school everybody had a skateboard and they had everyone had to pick their own favorite skateboard brand as a way of differentiating themselves right like I'm just <laughs> I like element or I like world industries i don't i couldn't skateboard i i didn't i just watched it right and i was like what i was just the weird guy that couldn't skate and um uh, but i watched these things everybody everybody left skateboarding and they went to bikes and bmx bikes and i'm like whoa who who started this memo and who was the first one it was like a magical thing you know i don't know who the first one was probably the one who had the most memetic currency amongst the click of friends or whatever, but that, that, that kind of moves. And those are insights into culture. And the thing about adults are, we are so arrogant and cynical that we want to act like, oh, well, that kid stuff is what kids do. But when we're adults now, everything we do is original. It's like, no, it's not, it's painfully not. So the question is, here's the thing that you have to understand. Why did we have a scapegoat mechanism to bind society together? If we are hyper mimetic, and if it's hard to stop Negative mimetic reciprocity. Once it starts snowballing, once I start having bad blood with you, it goes and it goes and it goes. Animal kingdom doesn't have this kind of thing. They have some mimetic patterns, but like an alpha wolf and his competitor, when they fight for dominance over the pack, when the one loses, they bear you know they surrender their neck, and usually the alpha wolf or whoever won. Will not take the final strike. You know, there's a there's a dominance and submission. I lost, you've got it. Okay, we're good. Okay. But that's not how humans are. That when humans have conflict, I kill your friend, you come back and kill my family. Whoever survives from that massacre comes and gets the community together, and we go and we go on a on a William Wallace-esque, you know, brave heart, let's kick some ass campaign. And it goes back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, to, and so the question is, it's like, how are we still here, mm-hmm. right? You know, how we, right? How did if we, because how do we like stop that from going out of control? What's the circuit breaker that shuts that whole insanity of of mimetic violence? What contains that, right? And so you know, you have to think about, okay, if everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else uh, in a time of bad blood, you know, because if if you have a If you have an antisocial attitude, you can mimetically spread that around your community. If you have Mm -hmm. a paranoid, um, aggressive tone and attitude that can spread around the community. So as that spreads like a disease, and it's so easy to talk about this now, if we've all lived through coronavirus, by the way, you know, I felt really confused about the Corona thing because I was like, I used to explain this mimetic theory. Like I was talking about this esoteric thing. You had to deeply go back in history. Now you just look around you. And it's so pat, it's like Rene Girard wrote the script, you know, like they, God gave him the script, write the next dramatic issues and try to, explain, <laughs> it and try to yeah. explain it because it's like, I can't, it's almost like not even a theory now. It's like, you just see it and we're in it. Um, but you know, as people have conflict, if you're, if you're, if you're imitating your neighbor's aggressive energy and finger pointing it, you know, you can imagine how it could be easy for that imitational pattern to kind of consolidate around a common threat. Right. And you can see this happen in various ways. I give the example of like I'm in high school and you see there's a table and there's a conflict. And, you know, somebody starts pushing somebody else, usually over a girl or something like that. Or maybe someone transferred from a rival school that has a conflict, you know, football or something. You know, this is my territory. This is your territory. Now you're in my territory. Get out, you know. And so there's a conflict that brews and it starts as a local event. But before you know it, you're in a certain situation, all the tables and chairs are flying everywhere. You might see that on some of those videos that go viral in Golden Corral or McDonald's. You know, things start flying everywhere, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so how did this happen? It's like a contagion of aggression. And you can feel it. If you ever walk in front of a fight breaking out, your adrenaline goes up. That's probably your mirror neurons or something. You know, you know you're know, you becoming mimetically drawn into that state of what it's like for the two combatants. You're, you're becoming because their adrenaline's up, you know, and their aggressive energy's up and their uh, heightened awareness and quick reflex. The closer, if you stand, no one does this, but if you were to stand in front of a very brutal fight as close as you possibly can, you would feel the draw, you know, of being pulled into that energy, you know? Yeah. Um, So you can imagine like in, in an archaic situation when, especially when times are rough, if there's scarcity, if there's a famine, if there's a plague or whatever that you can imagine that tensions start to brew between two people. And eventually, you know, maybe the rest of the community starts to join one side of that conflict. And, right. and they go after that threat and they purge that person and say, yeah, that person was a monster. That person was a, a trickster, uh, a demon from another tribe coming to trick us and take our women, something like that. That you know becomes like an accusation that everybody kind of agrees. Yeah, that's why that person was different. And the question right. is like, so so it can start as a conflict between two, and everybody joins that side, or it can kind of start like this person is just different. Like we're walking around, and that person, hey, you know that person looks different. They're uh, too pretty. They're too ugly. Uh, they have a deformity. And 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 so here's a clue. Like you were talking about what's revealed in mythology. As a lot of mythological gods have uh, uh, handicaps or disab- disabilities, you know, Oedipus Rex had a a, a problem with his foot, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's where you get the name. Um, Hephaestus. It, what's that?
0: Hephaestus or <clears throat> or Vulcan right. had a, a a janky foot,
2: or Cyclops with the eye, you know. And you, you ever see, you ever, you know, you get those Drudge Report stories where a goat is born with one eye in, in some small village in a country, you know, and they parade the thing around and they say they worship it as a god, but it would live for a few hours, a pig or a goat or something. It still happens to this day.
0: Mm-hmm. What you about know? that guy? Like, I remember when I was watching, I don't know if it was like Ripley's Believe It or Not or Guinness World Records or whatever. It's one of those, you know, kind of crappy shows from when I was a kid. And there was a boy that was born with a tail. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And he was worshiped
2: mm-hmm.
0: and he, they mm-hmm. thought he was the avatar of whichever the monkey God is in mm-hmm. Hinduism. Okay. Like, how does that still happen? Right. Like, that's <laughs> wild. Yeah.
2: And you can see how vestiges of that remain even with like circus culture in the 1900s, you know, where people were the bearded woman, the, the, uh, the, you know, these different things and they become paraded around and you have to go and pay money to see it. And there's pomp and circumstance and there's Mm -hmm. music and there's lighting. And there's a little bit of that vestige of that sacred aura around people with differentiation markers that stand out, especially Mm so, right? And so um, ancient societies were really worried about sameness. They were really worried about people losing their sense of self because that's where runaway envy, runaway covetousness, runaway conflict brews, and you don't have a society. It's too much bad blood. And so ancient societies create these prohibitions to try to limit uh, (laughs) moments of undifferentiation. So this is my property. That's yours. Don't go over it, right? Um, I always use the example sometimes of Rand Paul and his neighbor, right? Allegedly, the conflict was over his yard clippings were like over one centimeter over the line. Right. And that man was losing his mind that his sense of self. This is me. That's my property. You're Republican. I Democrat. You stay there. I stay. You're over my line. I'm feeling violated. Right. That feeling of uh, undifferentiation drove that man to a maddening moment of violence. Right. Where he wanted to, um, you know, violently um, uh, go after. That sense of slight. So ancient societies, archaic societies are very worried about runaway sameness. So they pray, they create these differentiation markers, they create these different hierarchical structures in society to try to mediate those moments of runaway mimetic uh, aggression. But all of those are mediated through what happens originally as a spontaneous event, which you alluded to earlier, of a, of a lynching of a common enemy, right? earliest archaeological evidence seems to ju- suggest that cannibalism ritual cannibalism was a very prevalent thing amongst various societies right And psycho decided-
0: loved cannibalism.
1: Yeah. I, I have a, a fascination with it because it is so outside of my experience. Why did why would people do this? because I feel natural revulsion to the idea of consuming the flesh of another human being. So, you know, at what point was this at least feeling to them like convey it was conveying a benefit to them? And I think that Gerard does kind of interestingly address that issue, which is that, you know, if it's not raining, your crops are dying, your children are dying and you do this action and then the next year the rains come and the crops grow and your babies don't die it stands to reason that eating people causes the fruit to grow larger. So like you do see the logical underpinning, like why a, why a person might think this. Yeah. And so it kind of underlies the, the human tendency toward violence. Um, that's just like, sort of like a secondary example of it.
2: And, and, and think about cannibalism specifically uh, as a type of scapegoating, right? Because not all scapegoating and ritual purgings are going to be cannibalistic. But that is something at the very earliest stages, we see a lot of that, yeah. of, of this kind of more direct form of purging where or, or eating really, consuming. And right. you think about, that's almost like a hyper mimetic state, right? You know, you're competing with someone and you're competing with someone. Or again, remember the idea of mimesis is oneness with the other. You're literally going to consume the other to be them. And yeah. I say it like if a society is plagued by uh, uh, contagious sameness, they're going to want to consume something that is seemingly other, right? So it's like an antidote, like I'm sick with sameness, let me devour that other. And if mm-hmm. I devour that other, we collectively are like cured from our pathological sameness. It's a right. weird, thing to look at but it, it kind of helps you see like why cannibalism. Now, think about this too. Um, a lot of these uh, cannibal killers you hear about, you know, in these sensational stories that still pop mm-hmm. up in the state. You ask them you you ever you ever look at them and they're always like uh they've got this sexual issue with cannibalism you know and they have this desire of possession of the other of consuming and I want to I wanted to have them I wanted to consume them I wanted to be them with mm-hmm. so this hyper mimesis to this violent grotesque uh, way right um so you can see how like society and, and there's a good movie I would recommend that helps you see this a little bit which is uh the act of killing by uh, Joshua Oppenheimer. Have you ever heard of this movie? It's a documentary about the uh, killings in Indonesia. The, it's a completely beautiful, he, I don't know if he has any knowledge of Gerard, but it's a completely amazing, staggering documentary presentation of kind of these aspects of the sacred that still persist in our more modern times. Because yeah. he, goes to this, he goes to these people in the 1960s there were these people in Indonesia that were in charge of the government that were going around and they were killing ethnic Chinese people and people accused of communism. And um, they went on all these different killing sprees and so forth, these paramilitary groups. And then those people who did those killings were now in power and they're old and retired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what this guy does is he goes to them and he says, hey, can you recreate – because they're kind of proud of what they did, of their exploits, because the reigning government order has – told their stories as if they were heroic acts from their perspective. Right. And so right. what the right. film, this brilliant movie, he goes and he says, I want you guys to recreate your amazing heroic acts and what you did back then on camera. And I'll help you direct you. You'll, you'll direct it. And I'll help you film it. I'm from America, you know, we'll make a, a movie the way you want it. And so there, these guys were all uh, affected by um, uh, mafia movies and Western movies. So they add all these weird stylistic elements from American cinema But these killers go and film and recreate what they did in their killings of these people, right? And one of the things they always said in the movie is they had to drink the blood of their victims to keep their sanity or else the ghosts of their victims would haunt them, right? So you're seeing in 1960 this kind of psychological vestige of the same primitive cannibalistic. It's like, again, you have to look at media like you're looking at a fossil record, like dinosaurs. You're looking at transitionary fossils, Yeah. Yeah. Because you're tracking, you're tracking how human beings like do their collective stuff, and then make sense of it, and they report on it in certain ways. And so, film is in keeping in that same trajectory of historical texts of persecution and myth making that are covering up victims. The farther back in history you go, the closer you go to our time because of how saturated we are. With the gospel revealing the scapegoating violence, the more you'll see it deconstructed and haunting the people who do the scapegoating. So in the movie, right. I, mean, I don't want to spoil it, but basically, the one of the people that actually comes—they just watch the film, the filming of what they did—exposes their conscience to what they did, and they start to be like repulsed and literally nausea, nauseous at to what they actually did. Once right. they have to perform it in art. And, and mm-hmm. so you, that's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about the gospel technology is that we can perform the gospel using your show, using whatever poetry, you know, whatever you do to express this kind of repentance that this guy like makes these people do kind of on accident, you know, because he's mm-hmm. trying to document an event and it ends up like making them literally like vomit out their, repent, their, their guilt and their shame. Um <laughs>
1: That that interestingly makes me think of those images you see of people who would um, lynch black people in the 60s, 30s to 60s, I guess, was the uh, era this was happening in. And a lot of these photos, people will be smiling. They're standing mm. around a body that's hanging from a tree, which is, you know, unarguably a grotesque, horrible thing. And they're all smiling. And that has always haunted me. Why are they smiling? Are they just monsters? you know, and people don't do things that they think are evil. They, they, whatever their justifications, they do think it is justified or else they wouldn't do it. And that's sort of like the secret to all of it is that they committing these vile actions, these vile acts of violence in the belief that it is somehow going to bring peace to their community. It's going to make things better
0: right yeah well and one of the things that I remember hearing I want to say it was from Elias when we talked to him but was the fact that a lot of times our reasoning or justification comes after action like mm-hmm. a lot of times you are caught up in mass hysteria you are caught up in this this mob mentality I I, I happen to send this to you today but uh, David have you ever heard of the meowing nuns Mm-mm. oh
1: that's right.
0: so so there so there were these nuns, A long time ago, who one of them started to meow like a cat and it spread to another nun who started also meowing like a cat. And then the entire convent over time started meowing like a cat to the point that uh, a neighboring person like the, the I guess the feudal lord or something actually sent soldiers to tell them if you don't stop meowing as loudly as you are, we're going to beat you. And so this is an actual, like, mass hysteria, mass memetics are a thing even in ridiculous examples. There's another example of um, uh, a woman who started dancing literally from sunrise to sunset. And then at one point, up to 400 people were doing the same thing in the streets to her. So they had to outlaw dancing which i thought is this why there are movies like uh, what's the movie with the dancing footloose footloose where there are towns that outlaw dancing like mass hysteria and people copying and imitating others is very well documented and i find Mm -hmm. that little fun i mean covid's a great example of this and and I, i love that there was the counter Mimetics of removing the masks but at this point but i'm in we're in florida so i mean like we had it better than most people um but at the the same time there are these universal human markers of this happening and it's it's fascinating so i keep going keep talking i just i just wanted to throw the meowing nuns in there it's
2: very fast i mean i could talk about this stuff for days i love it because the thing it's so it's so everywhere and it makes sense of so many disparate things like you're mentioning the lynchings. That was a big thing that impacted Gerard too. When he was coming to America and he's like, what in the world is going on with this recent, these recent events. And you look at some of those stories and it's sick, but they, they were taking tokens from the body, right? Which is kind of, again, you can see that trajectory back in time to cannibalism and, you know, like trophies and these things that like, I've got a piece of this shared sacred victim. right? Right. And why are we killing this person? They're caught up in mass hysteria. Usually it's an accusation, right? You did this, you you crossed a boundary of differentiation, remember? So that's our that this desire to be like, this is who we are, and this is my place in the hierarchy of society. And here we have right. this pressure cooker of economic turmoil. And I'm very low on the totem pole, but at least I can kick this person below me, right? And if that right. person comes up and and does something that or is accused of doing something that violates their order on the on the pecking order, right? then then there will be kind of like a crisis of identity. Well, who am I? If if this person supplants me on the hierarchy, then I'm the lowest and I will be the one who will be most likely to be systemically scapegoated on so many levels, right? So there's right. this yeah. kind of crisis of identity where people who are economically impoverished are going to be uh, prone to giving in to this kind of low resolution, violent, sacred violence approach. And, and I always think of the irony of how horrible it is that, um, you know, people, there are stories of, 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 a black man and not the only, not just one, but being paraded around in a mock King ceremony in a parade before being viciously murdered. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always think to myself like, this is in America in the 1920s and so forth. And it's like, these people went to church. Did they hear the homily? Or did they hear the reading of the gospel about Jesus being paraded as a King before he was murdered and sacrificed? Did that not ring a bell? You know how it, it, but again, looking back in hindsight, it's much easier for us to see these things, but it's much harder for us to see the sacrificial violence that persists in our own time. Right. And that's why. My child, you know, people are dying from these uh, vaccine injuries, right? Children. And and I just heard Peter McCullough, a doctor that I've had on the show multiple times, he said, there's something weird going on. They call it mass formation because Matthias Desmond, you know, the psychologist that got popularized by Robert Malone going on Rogan and talking about it. And McCullough. Oh, okay. And and, yeah. and so they talked about mass formation psychology. I recently interviewed Matthias Desmond. He's a psychologist talking about a psychological component of what, I was showing him in my interview is really rooted in what memetic theory shows. Right. So this yeah. is, this is like this mass formation is a component of the scapegoat mechanism that Girard identified in anthropology. And that um, just shows there's multiple pathways to the mountain to get to the same conclusion. Right. But and Matthias Desmond, by the way, really shared an agreement with me about how Jesus destroys the scapegoat mechanism. That'll be out soon on our show. But, um, uh, where is it going with that? Oh, yeah. But the idea is like if a child is injured from these experimental products, McCullough was saying it's, it's shocking to me how many these families don't make a big deal about it. They're like, like the well, US, this, is, as this was in the pursuit of public health. This was in the pursuit of the public good. Uh, it was for science. This was cutting-edge research. We're doing what we can to survive. We were being good citizens. And so there's your sacrificial logic, right? Yeah, <laughs> right? like it, it had to be done. This is This is a horrible price that we had to pay, but We must go through with it because of what? This big other, this transcendent big other that we call public health or democracy or the science. This is a big other that functions in the same way that the gods functioned in our older times, right? Um, Yeah. So the question I want you to think about is, well, how does a, how does a scapegoat become a God? Right. Because if it's, if it's vilified, how does it become worship? Right. Mm -hmm. And Gerard says often that the line between adoration and murder is very thin that gives us one clue. Right. Um, but this idea of like if you come together and you purge or you kill someone who's a common enemy, it creates a relief. It creates tension relief. Right. Right. Yeah. And you might say, well, how does it do that? Well, you can think about how that would do that. Um, you're in a time of famine. I don't like you. You don't like me. I think you stole something from my hut. You say, no, I didn't steal it, but I think that you're weird. And I think you're, you know, you've got a weird disease or you're possessed mm-hmm. by a demon. Cause I saw you staying up really late, David. And I don't know about you and there's tensions going around. And then we say, well, Hey, I know who the common person is. It's she, she's a witch or she's cast a spell on the whole community. And we send her out off of a cliff and we say, ah, don't you feel so much better? Wow. That was really intense. Did you see how scary she looked at us? I'm telling you, she had demons. Did you see how she screamed and yelled at us? I mean, goodness. I mean, confirmed everything we believed. Now we're good. Feel relieved. But the, now you feel that way when Darth Vader you, was that?
1: I said the scheme wouldn't work though if they knew that the people that they were victimizing were innocent. They have to believe. Yeah, they have to believe the Right. is evil. That's, That's why the left has
2: to believe that Trump is the monster of all monsters for them to function, right? They right. can't just believe he's just another politician that would ruin their entire sense of purpose and identity. They have to believe he is a villain sent by Russia to destroy civilization and whatever, right? They have to believe in that Grinch to maintain their community. Yeah, well, and,
0: and not to mention, they, they also are um, very capable and often use this catharsis, this perceived catharsis to control people and their feelings. Like, take a look at um, you could Harvey Weinstein, or um, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Spacey, Bill Cosby. These are what uh, my friend Monica will call a sacrificial wolf. They take the clearly evil person and they sacrifice that evil person in order for you to feel that the the systemic issue is resolved.
2: Symbolically, yeah, symbolically punished, yeah.
0: Right, so if Epstein is dead, if Bill Cosby's in prison, if if Harvey Weinstein never sees the light of day, then that Mm -hmm. means... The child rape isn't happening anymore. Right, right. They've gotten the guy, and so and this guy it, is murdered.
2: Everything in Libya is fine, you know. Right,
0: right. It's right. It, they they use it against us, and I I that I think is the most interesting portion of it because I remember, you know, even before I heard of memetic Theory, like I had talked to to Monica Perez about that. I was like, I I feel like there are certain people, like yeah, I think that. Harvey Weinstein's a monster and he probably has a weird wiener, like they said in his, his <laughs> trial. But like, clearly they want us to see him prosecuted so that we mm. stop asking questions about what Hollywood is doing behind closed doors. And and,
2: and people know in the in the establishment forces, they kind of intuitively know how to use them like mimetic Christian sensibility against the population, right? So they'll come out and say, Bill Gates is being unfairly scapegoated by far-right conspiracy theorists. And you're like, and then so so because we're so Christian, we're, you know, even if we're not Christian, we're Christianized, like you said, whether you're secular or not, you're swimming in Jesus's fishbowl of moral uh, wiring, kind of. Um, And so so we know how to, like, prey on that. And that's how that's how the establishment keeps its power going is it's always like, don't scapegoat Mr. Tony Fauci, this poor old man, you know, make him out to be the problem. He caused everything. I mean, you guys are just villainous scapegoaters. And so because we're so Christian, we don't want to be associated with scapegoating. So we're they use that narrative machine and media to keep kind of like. Well, don't you dare, you know, so that keeps some of the uh, justice from ever taking place because yeah. they can always say, well, you're kind of scapegoating them, aren't you? And you're like, no, I would never do that. I'm a very nice, sensible, modern, uh, sophisticated yeah. person. I would never scapegoat anybody. I mean, I'm. that's what the primitive Trumpsters do, right, or whatever. That's what those irredeemable deplorables. That's why if you ever watch like Twitter whenever there's a Trump rally, just read what they say. Oh, they're yeah. missing teeth. They're stinky. They're dirty. You know, that's the same thing, really, psychologically going on in the old South with those uh, terrible attacks against African American people. It's like I want to make sure that someone is lower than me on the hierarchy of power, right? right? And so that's what right. the left. That's why the left's obsessed with like hating and spreading so much uh, blame on on the people it's not about Trump really. It's about what he represents, right? He's trying to be, he's trying to humanize a designated scapegoat class that the establishment has said, you are free to punch on. You're free to mock. You're free to, you're free to talk about their poverty. You're free to talk about their teeth being gone. You're free to talk okay. about being inbred. You're free to say everything you want. You can yeah. punch on them. It's okay. Beat on them. Beat, beat, beat. It's okay. That's your scapegoat. And then that class says, no, You guys are the criminals. No, you know, so that the 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 says no, no, you guys are scapegoating. No, you guys are doing this. And they're all kind there's always little bits of truth in a lot of this, right? This is mimetic rivalry. You get in the midst of it, and it looks like an undifferentiated mob of the same, you know, it's like Looney Tunes, I say, you know, where they're fighting and then Bugs Bunny comes (laughs) out and you're still fighting behind him, and he's like, What is going on here? It's just mindless, you know, undifferentiated violence. I mean, Looney Tunes is way more rigorous philosophically than most of the stuff you'll learn in philosophy class at, at your local university today uh, just watch it and enjoy with mimetic theory in the mind but uh, yeah i mean it's it's uh i don't know where we were going with that but um, well
0: i think I will do that your, your, go ahead. no i was just going to say i will say that your example of the old south and black people is particularly apt because i think that they did scapegoat black people because they were mad at The federal government they were bad at the north for what the north did to them for what what poverty they put them through with um you know carpet bagging with reconstruction with all of these things Mm -hmm. and i think that if you look at the historical record i i don't think i i think that black people were scapegoats and Mm -hmm. in a big way Mm -hmm. so that's fascinating to me I appreciate and, and, you bringing that
2: up, and 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 you can you can look. That's why to understand the left, you have to understand that they get their power by. And again, I, I we keep skipping ahead because we haven't really explained to the audience how Christianity precisely makes <laughs> power what it is. But um, right. um, if you uh, if you look at what the lefts doing, they're basically getting their power from what I call like martyrs' energy. You know, because they come along the side of historical injustices and victims, and they say, look at this. And so they're taking the kind of, it's a kind of cruciform power. It's a, they're yeah. taking the cross and they're wielding it for political power. Gerard yeah. calls it victimism, where you use the concern for victims to gain power and status and influence, right? The yeah. left does that better than the right every day. Most of the days, they just do it better. Um,
0: uh, it's a cruciform perversion as well. Because, I mean, look, look at Revelation. If you read into Revelation, you see this, this image that John sees of that there's the seals that need to be opened. And in those seals, the only person who can open them is the strongest among them. And so he, he hears, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb. Mm-hmm. And then you see later on in the the battle that Jesus comes to the battle already bloody. And so in this way, Jesus shows us that the way to defeat our enemies, the way to defeat evil, defeat death, is through sacrificial giving <clears throat> of your own life. It's through not harming people. And so these people take the martyrs, they take the the victims, and they they justify their violence with them. And that's so it's per, like i said it's a a perverse cruciform symbol and, I, right. and that, that's why that's G- interesting
2: gerard called that the antichrist because it takes on the form of the cross it takes on the form of the defense of the victims remember holy spirit means paraclete in paraclete means the defense attorney right and so you've got and then you've got the uh the accuser is is where we get satan from the accuser yeah, so it's satan. like special prosecutor versus the defense attorney and it's fighting in a courtroom battle over whether to allow this victim to be you know scapegoated and condemned or to give mercy and save the victim so there's kind of a courtroom drama there which we between what Satan does in the principalities and the kingdoms of this world and what the defender does, the Holy Spirit community. And, and when Zizek is right, you know, Zizek, he, he always talks about like the cross is the death of the big other. And he mm-hmm. talks about, it, it, it kills this kind of like big other, this certain transcendence that we can appeal to. And after, because Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like, he says the true atheism is in that cross moment, right? But the absence of this certainty of this transcendent big other. And that's another way of looking at what Girard talks about, which is that, that Jesus' story destroys the unanimity and the catharsis of the scapegoat mechanism, what which calls the dethronement of the big other. And is actually um, another way of looking at the scapegoat mechanism and its concealment of violence, its maintenance of society, it's unanimity. That's so important. The unanimity of violence is what's necessary for society to function in that in that pre-Christian way, right? Is that we all come together and we say this is what needs to be done because this person is wrong. Now, so when you have that original spontaneous lynching and that murder in the primitive sense, people remember that. They remember that we were at each other's throats, must have been a spell, must have been a famine, must have been something— And our ancestors did this, they did X, Y, and Z, and that resolved the problem. So it's kind of like a recipe that is socially remembered through the generations. And as it's repeated, it becomes more intentional, where at first it was a spontaneous thing. It now becomes uh, more of 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 a codified ritual thing, right, where you're remembering something in an intentional way. And that's why all the societies have ritual sacrifice at their roots, right? It's because yeah. that's mm-hmm. that's an attempt to kind of recreate, like going to a civil war reenactment, but in a more <laughs> real way. You're, you're trying to right. recreate the moment that created order in a time of chaos that your ancestors did.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you ever read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson? Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a very yeah.
0: This is this is bringing this to mind because yeah. it's. I mean, it is mimetic theory in what a uh, twelve page short story. Yeah. So if, read that because that's yeah. it in action, what he just talked that about. That was like a fine
2: time. reading in public school, and little did they know that it was revealing public school to the kids reading it. They just didn't see it at the time, you know. <laughs> you could only know ahead of time <laughs> what we were reading. Um, I think
1: it is interesting to know that um, a lot of this is a response to a pre-Christian world, and when it's criticized for not solving every problem of violence in our current society, they're judging it by the very standard of Christianity, and saying, "Oh well, this according to the standards of Christianity, Christianity didn't fix everything." Sort of like you're not taking into account that you're. This is all a response to a world where none of these ethics existed before that.
2: I mean, like, Christianity. Even... Yeah, Christianity basically invented children as a thing, yeah. right? Yeah. As like, <laughs> n- ironically, as not a thing, right? So there, you know.
1: I was. I was Christianity
2: a, uh, is what what put hum- put children in a special status to protect. Where in the, in the Roman world, they were being used in women. Used in the band. Was, yeah, women.
1: I, that's what I was going to say was like I was not considered a person <laughs> until that revolution. Um, This is something that Cam and I have talked about previous times on the show, that um, Christianity was the first ancient world human rights movement and definitely a women's rights movement as compared to the Greek and Roman worlds where women were chattel, they were there as a necessary part of nature for reproduction. And really kind of seen as like anti-manly and therefore like the epitome of everything you didn't want to be.
0: And if I remember correctly, we we talked earlier, you and I and a friend, about the current zeitgeist, where we are right now. And it it reminded me because we were kind of talking about how what is not masculine Mm -hmm. is being shoved into the box of being a woman at this point so there's there's a lot of that shifting um and it reminded me of the fact that in I want to say it was Greek culture women weren't considered to be separate but they were deformed men right right and so that I just wanted to throw that out there that it's 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 an interesting thing that Christianity in particular really, even earlier than Christianity, when it was Judaism, really pushed the idea that women were equal to men, if not the same. Because sameness and equality are two different things, by the way.
1: Correct. So now you have a society informed by Christian ethics turning around and saying, Christians are so uh, repressive of women and i'm like you wouldn't even know how to read right now if it weren't for christianity like that right. every every woman in this country that knows how to read you can thank christian ethics for your ability it's like to- even the,
2: the both sides of the abortion debate are christian arguments really they're just different yeah. you see what i mean like right. like the idea of a woman should have a cons- the consent to determine what the, if they want a, a someone in their you know living in their body and growing in their body the baby right there's mm-hmm. so there's the sacredness of the will right right this idea of like my agency is sacred. That's Christianity, right? Christianity is the one that says that Mary voluntarily uh, agrees with, with God, you know, bringing this uh, child, Uh, all other myths, whenever there's a God interacting with a woman, it's violent uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and rape. Uh, This is the only story in which consent is at the heart of the, situation um it's it's a total we have no clue how revolutionary this would be for the world in which this text comes we have no idea i mean going back to joseph right radical ancient bc story that's saying um at the time the oedipus is being written or, or developed this idea of oedipus where you know there's this problem there's a plague Oedipus says, "Yeah, it turns out yeah, I agree with the accusations that I um, killed my uh, dad, and you know I, I, you know I did all this stuff. I slept with my mother, therefore I'm guilty." And he blots out his eyes and he leaves the the, the community, and the in the in Thebes is restored. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is a preservation of the scapegoat me- mechanism in a more direct because the playwrights were more in tune with giving a little bit more truth to the process of myth. So that when you mm-hmm. see a play like Oedipus Rex, it kind of reveals the sausage making of, of the mythic concealment of victims a little more than like an mm-hmm. ancient, more primitive myth. If you go back in the earliest myths, like creation myths, they start with chaos. Yeah. So how did the chaos get there if this is the beginning? If this, if this myth is about really, truly like a scientific report about the beginning of material world, why it's does it start with chaos? <laughs> it's because talking about how they actually resolved a primordial moment of chaos socially, and then yeah. out of this murder, Marduk—you know—I'm just making up—Marduk like, falls, and his head opens up, and out comes this tribe, and out comes right. the waters, and and it's like all yeah. this differentiation. Here is this. Here is us. Here are you. It's all this orderly stuff out of some cartoonish act of violence, and we read that because we are still mythically concealed in our own modern myths, and we say. Oh, how cute! They're just trying to come up with creative expressions. That's what you learn in mythology (laughs) class and humanities. Look at this wonderful little cartoony little thing. What does this tell us about the seasons? And what does this tell? That's where you get into kind of the young stuff, where it's like, oh, the archetypes, and that's all great, but you're not looking at what's really going on because Gerard would say you need to apply the same skepticism you have to more recent texts of history where persecution is shown, you need to apply that same hermeneutical suspicion to ancient myth. That's all he's mm. doing. I want to get to a shorthand of what I'm talking about with Gerard for like understanding myth is just apply the same skeptical hermeneutic that you apply to a text in the middle ages where they say there was a plague and they said the Jews did it. They threw the Jews down a well and the plague went away. When we read that text, we know, okay, that's not true. That they didn't do that. The Jews didn't do that. That they're being accused of something that's magical. Or you read the story of the witches. Oh, there was this death, and we killed the witch. She said she was guilty. Yeah, she said she's as guilty because you wrote the report, or, or she was coerced, right? But you got your guilty victim, so now you can write it off in the stories as guilty, and they believe it, right? A lot of them believe it, and and um. And then we read that text and we're like, oh, how dare those Christian patriarchal people, you know? But it's like the reason why you can see the hypocrisy is because the way in which it's reported is more gritty, really, it's more realistic. So you can mm-hmm. see, see, if if they had a story in the Salem era that said there was this God and he breathed fire, and and we came along and there was a rain, and we were all gonna drown. And one day we decided to let that God fly off of a cliff. And ever since that day, on that day, we commemorate how that God flew off into the heavens and stopped the torrential rains. First of all, we wouldn't recognize a text like that, you know, as like, you know, like we were like, what is that, a fantasy story someone wrote in in the 1600s? What is that, you know? But like we wouldn't recognize that. But that's how primitive archaic mythology is, right? And we give that a pass. We don't say there's any concealment of violence there. We're just like, oh, that's just artsy expression. No, the reason why we do that is because we're trying to avert our gaze from the truth of human violence. You see, Mm -hmm. we are more likely to see the violence and hypocrisy in a more recent event when it's a Christian context, right? Because then we can say, hey, it's like killing the messenger, right? It's like the very thing that allows that text to be more realistic in its portrayal of violence so that we can read it and be like, no, that's obvious BS. The winners are writing the history. That's not true. Those witches. Mm -hmm not do that. They're not witches. They're innocent. This is a sham. And we read that as propaganda and the same thing we can go in more recent history. You know, I mean, we see this all the day, all the time in media today. Oh, that's not true. That's not what Trump said, or that's not what happened in that. That's not what happened there. You know, that, you know, when Hillary Clinton said, we came, we saw he died. Ah, ha, ha, ha. You know, we're like, no, that's not true. We saw the video. That's a sham thing. You unleash slavery. That wasn't a good thing right? So media allows us today to see different perspectives the same way that the gospel text did in accounting for Jesus's death from the victim's perspective. So important. Showing the victim's perspective. So when you see Gaddafi as brutal of a man he was being butchered, that's a gospel technology because you're like, wait a second, this isn't right, right? Right, right. Wicked, like this is not right. This is mob violence. That woman's laughing about that on Hiller on, on CBS. She yeah. is not a, is not a model for young women to imitate. This is really sick, right? So your conscience, the gospel, is like a type of doing technology, whether it's a camera watching Gaddafi or a photograph of Emmett Till, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a type of technology that opens up a space of learning for society to then evolve away from that era's form. Of sacred violence. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. no, and
0: in and, and you 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 bring up primitive and pagan gods, and I find it fascinating because if you like my my particular interest when it comes to reading about mythology has been Norse. And what I love about the I mean, like the gospel does it, the gospels do it absolutely, but it preceded that even in the Genesis account of creation. Because those accounts fly in fa- in the face of every other um, mm. creation myth in mm-hmm. the most fascinating ways. Like if you look at, uh, like I said, Norse mythology, Odin, Vili, and Vey destroyed the giant Ymir and created the world through using his blood, his skull, his hair, etc. And Marduk is a great example as well. And that's actually the contextual um, uh, adversary of the the Genesis narrative yeah. right, right. And I love it so much because you have you do have the chaos you do have it but you don't have the violence that necessitated the creation of the world in the in, well it, it's all the gospel to be honest it's all the good news um, but you don't have that in Genesis you have a God who created ex nihilo in a sense but I love digging into ancient cosmology because i get to exit the mind of a rationalistic 21st century man and look at how they understood the world and how they understood creation because creation Mm -hmm. wasn't in the sense of oh well science says that this happened and it's not materialist it's about classification in some sense it's about usefulness it's about utility it's about how god named things And thus they found their identity, and it's complete. It's a polemic in a sense against the pagan cultures of the time, and I adore that so much. Yeah, and I I just had to throw that in there because I mean, you you mentioned Joseph, but you didn't get to to really expound upon that yet. But yeah, yeah, Joseph, Joseph yeah, Joseph,
2: yeah, he's thrown into a ditch, and then the radical thing about the gospel and that story is the camera goes down with him into the ditch.
0: Yeah. Because modern hero. walk around
2: and they say, if I was in the day of my ancestors, we would not have done what all these injustices, these modernist liberal in us too, because we're all liberal to some degree. We're all in this kind of hubristic, um, um, superiority complex about it. Well, I, you know, that's why we have 1619 project. We got to go back and, and, and flagellate past uh generations as if we are standing okay. above history, right? As we, you know, freaking send people to all kinds of gruesome sacrificial violence every day. I mean, they have, they elected a guy like Biden who spent half a century locking up people in vulnerable communities for profit and power and mm-hmm. throwing away the key and sending them into assault cages where there's no way of defending themselves from brutal violence. Right. Yeah. And they, they, they voted for that guy feeling as if they were cathartically defeating the dragon who was somehow stopping uh, racial justice and things from happening I mean, but stupid we, myth just, like, kept it going, right? But that's, that's the illusion. That's the fantasy of myth-making in real time. And the news media is the is the kind of continuation of the priestly cast that would tell the scribal traditions of, right. why are we doing this sacrifice again? Oh, yeah, the wow. gods did this. And in the beginning there was this. And that bloodshed is what allowed us to have this and differences and order and things like that. And so we have to keep doing the same sacrifice that's what the news media is kind of functioning as. So when people say, I wish the media would get back to the good old days when they're objective news, I'm like, those are blips on the radar because of Christianity creating a subversive prophetic critique in news media. That wasn't the that was the exception to the rule. Media has always been mediators, the priestly cast. They've always been telling the populace.
0: Yep. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> He blipped out, but no, he. he it, it, that's that's the concept of the cathedral. That's the concept of the. Why? I mean, all right, you're back.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's the. You're saying that's the concept of the cathedral, which is a very uh, uh, appropriate term for this. We're dealing so so when. When Jesus, I mean, there's so many stories you can show in the Old Testament. I mean, you can go right to the first story where Cain kills Abel, and he found on his bloodshed, he founds the first city. So there's your state right there. There's your first polis, right? Uh, It's founded by bloodshed. It's founded by um, a desire for the other, right? This other person got a status that I wanted, and I killed them, and that other thing was that.
0: And Lamech, you you follow that up with the story in Genesis of Lamech, who killed another man and said, I'm seven times what Cain was, right? Like it it, it builds upon itself. That is mimetic in and of itself. It's, I want to be like Cain who created this city. And so now I have Canaan, who is the traditional enemy of Judaism.
2: And and what's, what's interesting about the text is that a lot of Girard um, fans who go into theology and stuff, they point out that um, some of those texts look like they're taking on the voice of myth, Right. And so there's an argument within some Girard fans, and even Rene Girard would say, he changed a little bit on some of the things in his later years, but there's this idea that I'm comfortable with, which is the idea that the Bible is a text in travail, where there's an argument happening between like the priestly voices and the prophetic voices, right? If have mm, some people mm-hmm. saying, you know, God demands the sacrifice, and then you have another one saying, no, when I brought you out of Egypt, I did not demand the blood of bulls and goats and so forth. And so you're like, what's going on here? So there's a dialogue happening within the text itself. And you say, well, is, that a, is, that a, is that a flaw? And it's like, no, actually, it's a feature. <laughs> because what it's allowing us to do is to be able to be in dialogue and wrestle with this tension of some stories having kind of a little bit more of that mythological af- approach. And then other stories having the revelation of the victim. And, and how could you have done that? If they had told the full revelation without any of the context of the world perspective as it was progressively evolving, then it would be a revelation. It would be another revolutionary moment that would end in violence. It's precisely because the Bible preserves an antho, a kind of an anthology of texts of human beings grappling in the dark with what God wants of us. Mm-hmm. And that dialogue of kind of get, of getting it right, but then sometimes falling back into the voice of the persecutor, but then going back to the voice of the victim and allowing that to be in dialogue is what allowed a society to like the Israelites to develop and remember what it's like to be persecuted. If they had had, what I'm trying to say is like all revolutionary moments try to just throw out, right. It's out with the old, we're starting a new culture, no sacrifice, That is a violent thing. It ends in violence, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Because you're you're not showing, you're not giving space for growth and and like maturation. And so the Bible is so nonviolent that it won't violently break up the sacrificial order in its text. That's why you have animal sacrifice. That's why you have these things that are kind of like weaning humanity, like you need to scapegoat. So let's do animals, not humans. Let's start with that, Okay. You need to kill something to vent your sins and your pains and your miseries and your jealousies and all that. Okay. Let's do an animal. Okay. So that's what the story of Abraham, in my opinion is the text, the narrator is changing, which is a type of art. We know that there's unreliable narrators in good literature. The Bible is mm-hmm. a great, greatest literature of all. So that you're going to have a narrator that says, Hey, go kill your child. And we look at that and we're like, as modernists, we're like, Oh my goodness, what a horrible thing. In that context, that was like, okay, That's what God's do. They demand your child sacrifice. What is this mall? Okay. Same old, same old. Let's go do it. And then the text changes. Oh, okay. Don't do the child. Do the, do the animal. That's (laughs) evolutionary thing, right? The, the go kill your child thing. We look at that 2000 years infected with Christianity. We're like, Oh, the horror, what a terrible thing. What a horrible burden that would be. But for Abraham, it was just like, of course, it's a terrible thing. Probably he felt, but societally, that's kind of the way God's did their deal. You know? Yeah. And demand sacrifice of their firstborn. That's why uh, the story of um, of uh, you know the story of um, of uh, what is it the uh, Jericho where where it says yeah. this city is founded with the cost of your firstborn. Right. It's kind of showing you like this is the way uh, societies are going to be like founded within your order, and and God is going to work with people in their false creation of a sacred in their own image. And he's going to work with people to slowly, like, operate from their language and point them back to his true transcendence to get them out of the false transcendence that for a time had kept society kind of functioning in a way. But he's going to try to yeah. say, okay, that's why we've got to stop that slowly. That's why you have the Old Testament leading the prophetic tradition to Jesus so that there's this process of maturation where a people can understand what it's like to be persecuted, what it's like to be a loser, what it's like to be defeated and to write their story in that context, right? Because they're writing in captivity. Only a people that writes and remembers who they are in captivity could even be able to even prepare the way for uh, the scapegoat, not as a nation, but as a person now, right? So a nation is scapegoated, this people, they're scapegoated by different, Empires here and there, and then from that nation of scapegoats, the true scapegoat of human history comes in, and he's scapegoated by that nation, right? And then through that scapegoating, he creates this new world order, in which wherever that story goes, people start to see history from the perspective of the victim of the of the so-called losers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the scapegoat crisis, and now that starts to infect and it starts to destroy from within the well-oiled machine of sacrificial violence.
0: Yeah. Well, and and, and one of the things that I've come to the conclusion uh, to in recent days, looking at all of these different stories, I mean, like you, you'll, you'll hear theologians describe the new Testament and what Jesus did as um, instituting the upside down kingdom. But if you go from Genesis to Revelation, you see that the Bible, in a sense, is one giant polemic against the violence of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a, it goes against these, these ideas and these destructive mm-hmm. things that we do. And it's it's progressive, not in the the sense of what uh, Woodrow Wilson brought to us with his social gospel, with what we mm-hmm. have today, with our, our wars of bringing democracy to people who don't want it, but progressive in the sense that it actually is progressing through time. And God knew where we were and mm-hmm. where we, we could be, and created these stories and this this oral tradition that became a written tradition that we're able to access today and go, okay, so my nat- what I what I perceive as my nature, which is corrupt rather than my actual nature, desires violence. It desires destruction, it desires peace through way of war. When in fact, at the end of the day, God wants peace by way of peace, mm-hmm. and I find that beautiful. And I just had to—I had to mention that because it's—it's the Bible as a polemic. Could I could write I could write that book. Maybe I will someday.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very—it's a, very, a very empathetic polemic too, because it, that's why it doesn't throw out the perspective of this sacrificial logic that runs through this story it's because there's a tension here there, there's a it's a process of being aware of what we're doing and getting the false transcendence that we created as a kind of stopgap to prevent runaway violence and starting to realize wait a second there's another way there will be blood but the question is are we willing to sacrifice another or willing to self-sacrifice right mm-hmm. and that's Jesus brings to the table is, okay, now it's time to learn how to self-sacrifice, not necessarily that you always literally have to die, but that you have to die to the self, die to the right to yourself, right? That I have a right to be comfortable and I don't have to be, you know, and and that's why I want those drug dealers to be in a cage because I'm scared about what they're going to do if we allow drugs to go around in society. And so that does, you have to sacrifice that part of yourself, that fear of your other, of the other, rather than to sacrifice the other, because by sacrificing the other, you perpetuate the violence and the drug war, and it gets worse and worse and worse, right? So that's operating under the kingdom of Satan. That's what Jesus talks about when he talks about Satan casting out Satan. Satan exists by chaos, and then by consolidating that chaos onto a common victim, and that Satan is then cast out to resolve the original satanic chaos that started. And that's the process that all kingdoms operate under. That's That's why... Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. He's like, okay, this is how I do it. All you have to do is imitate me and you can have the kingdoms of the world. And what he's going through is, is, is a psychological temptation to be William Wallace there. Yeah. You know, basically, like yeah. you've yeah. got a movement on your hands, Jesus, just do a little bit of violence. Let's make this Robin hood. Let's, let's take, you know, he, he's trying to appeal to Jesus' sensibilities. They look, you've got a movement coming. You've got all this injustices, the people are on your side. Let's do a little William Wallace Braveheart action here. Just do it like I would do. And and I, and traditionally, the place in which he takes them in that mountain scene overlooks. I was at in, in in Jericho, the ancient Jericho town where they had the heart of the city in the original tell that they had there. And there was a, a sacrificial temple there. And they're like, there's a sacrificial temple.
0: Isn't it you know, also inside of Mount Hermon? Um,
2: the, what, what is this? the temptation mountain? Yeah. It may be, I don't know, I don't remember the name, but it just I remember that the guide that I was with, he was like, "Okay, this is the Jericho um uh city center. This is where they would do sacrifices." And so I'm thinking like, "Okay, Jericho that means moon god, so this is like moon god city. This yeah. is how we keep the moon on. This is how we keep the lights on as we got to sacrifice humans and animals right, and so forth." Right. And so and then he says in passing, and it wasn't part of Jericho, it was just like, Oh, yeah, over there, that mountain is traditionally known as the Mount of Temptation, where Jesus was taken up by Satan. And I'm like, Oh, so he would have seen the cityscape, but he'd have seen the biggest tower that I'm standing next to, where sacrifices were done. And Jesus yeah. and Satan's yeah. like, This is how it's done, Jesus. Come on. You want to be a king, you want to be like Bernie Sanders, you want to lead the 99 against the one, whatever it is, you've got to you gotta. Spill a little blood there. Come on now, yeah. and that's what Peter does to him too. He's like, "Don't let it be said that you would die on the cross, dude." Come on, we've got. So that's why he says, "Get behind me, Satan," because the spirit of temptation of political violence has been brought back into yes. the question with Peter. There,
0: we we
1: sorry, Cam. We recently had an episode where we talked about um, the willingness of Christians to do violence on their enemies. It just seems to be this like current that we've been seeing lately, where it's like mm-hmm. these special people are selected. And it's OK to do violence on them because it's for the greater good. It's for you know all of the reasons we just went through. And for some reason, it's just like this. We have chosen these people to surpass the command of Christ to love your enemy. And mm-hmm. how how do we like it modern corporate Christianity? How did they square this against the actual teachings of the teacher?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things like Mount Hermon, which I believe is the mountain that those sacrifices were done on. And I have another point about sacrifices in a second. So remind me if I forget, I'm too ADHD to do all this. Um, <laughs> but you you have this statement to Peter about, and on this rock, I will build my church and not, you know the gates of hell can't pre- prevail against it. One of the best things I ever did was I stepped back from reading that verse and I, I, I read what was there because in my mind, as I read the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I read that as offensive, that the gates of hell, but what are gates? What are we talking about here? Gates are defensive by nature. So in this, in this, this conversation about the gates of hell, this is a defensive mechanism and God is not, Jesus wasn't saying that we will we will fight their onslaught. He's saying we will take their city. We will take what they believe is theirs. And so I just wanted mm-hmm. to say that. But also your your point about Jericho is interesting because if you look at the actual Greek of the New Testament, the word that is so there are a couple of words, Sheol, um Hades and Gehenna that are translated as hell, which Mm -hmm. I think is incredibly imprecise and should be fixed in some in some of these translations. But Gehenna is especially interesting because a lot of people will tell you that Gehenna was a garbage dump and that's what you know Jerusalem used it for or whatever. But in reality, if you look at you know Jeremiah Isaiah, you have the conversation about Gehenna, which means the Valley of Hemnon which was used as a place of Moloch worship and Moloch sacrifice, which was child sacrifice. And so this was a place that was desecrated. This is a place that was made detestable. And so this idea of child sacrifice, of human sacrifice, of this catharsis of scapegoating into children became what we see as the concept of hell. That Mm -hmm. is where, those, if you look at Isaiah, those who rebelled, those who did these things are killed mm-hmm. and rot and are destroyed. And it's just the, the, the idea of Jericho plays so well with Jesus's concept of Gehenna. And I just wanted to throw that out there. Well,
2: that's kind of why I think Jesus warned about Gehenna because uh, he was telling, you know, the people who were who were under occupation by Rome and corrupt leadership of their own that, you know, like if you continually keep this attitude of sacrificial violence to like get vengeance back on, you know, God's going to get our people, he's going to get our enemies and we're going to get our, and you don't clean house in your own heart. Right. And you just want to keep getting, you want to get that vengeance. Mm -hmm. You're going to end up getting Gehenna and Josephus says they did. Right. So in 70 AD with the rebellion, They're being thrown into the Valley of Gehenna because—so that's kind of like perpetuating the child sacrifice thing. Like, people are being sacrificed because instead of following the way of peace and nonviolence that Jesus offered you, you chose the path of reciprocating, mimetically imitating the violence and ugliness of your persecutors, and then all it did was just create more sacrifice of your own, of your children, just like child sacrifice— And it literally happens in 70 AD. So that's what he's, he's just warning them. You're going to, you know, beget more violence. It's not going to solve your problems. It's going to make it worse. And um, that's why his way had to go through what he did by, you know, okay, now I'm going to have to show you the sausage making of sacrificial logic. And it's this perfect culmination of both like the Jewish way of sacrificing That was happening. They didn't do human sacrifice like the pagans did, like Rome did, but they did still sacrifice in their own way. Right. I mean, because there's a difference between like like stoning the woman accused of adultery is a kind of sacrificial violence. Right. But it's not Mm -hmm. the same as human sacrifice like the Aztecs were doing. Right. But the Jews were still doing some of that, even though they weren't their prophetic tradition had cleaned up so much of that human sacrifice relative to other cultures. That were still more concealed by mythic violence, that they weren't doing human sacrifice like that, but they were still doing human sacrifice in other ways, right? And yeah. so that's why Jesus is like trying to like see that like what you see with the wickedness of Rome is really you're still doing that under your own way, and you you are killing the prophets, and you're you know you're still killing the prophets. You're not better yeah. than your fathers. So you're not the good guys here. You've got to recognize the blind spot that you have here. And, and that's why that story brings the Jewish story and this universal pagan impulse of sacrificial violence. It brings them together, right? And then it and it, it, bring, it births something new that is revelation where you can yeah. now harmonize both the, the tradition of the Jews and the pagan world. And that's why Christianity has been so attractive to uh, tribal societies that encounter it. Because they intuitively get, oh, okay, so that's why we were doing that sacrifice stuff. They get it because they're much more in tune to the visceral reality of sacrifice as a way of binding a community together than us modernists who hide our sacrifices into mandates and laws and taxes and, you know, all these bureaucratic, uh, supposedly non-religious forms of behavior. The, the people who are still more in these indigenous communities are like, oh, so when they hear the story of Jesus, that's why they're like, they they intuitively get it. I get it. So that's what this is for. Right. This is the end of sacrifice. I don't need yeah, the and, sacrifice anymore. And, not and that's why mention, the first things they do is put away their sacrificial rituals when they encounter the gospel.
0: Right. And, and not to mention that even in that, the fact that Jesus assented to his sacrifice is radically different than the rest. Right, right. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's why different. And that's why there's there's like when we do Memorial Day and we talk about people laying down their lives for the nation, there's a kind of Christian form there, and there's also the pagan form there, right? Because yeah. the Christian form is like you lay down your life not in the process of killing somebody else. <laughs> you know, that Jesus right. doesn't kill, he doesn't lay down his life going out with a suicide mission to take out his his tormentors. You know, he lays right. down his life voluntarily and doesn't take anybody with him. And yet uh, today our nation uh, I think there is something christ-like with someone saying you know what I've you know it's World war II and I've got to you know defend my nation from these horrible people in that way there's a kind of christian self self-sacrifice to it but it's not in its fullest sense right it's not fully christian it's it's still missing the mark in some sense now if you're drafted in something now that becomes even more christian because it's like it's not your choice you've been assigned to this death and you're going to do what you can to survive and protect those around you that that question of war is a very interesting thing because the way we look at war is steeped with Christian Christian influence to that story that humanizes mm-hmm. the soldier and honors yeah. the soldier and also recognizes kind of how it's being the soldiers being used as a vessel of sacrifice for the nation's body that's why they tie the your right to vote is tied yeah. to they shed their blood for your right to vote so the preservation right. of the nation's body is contingent upon like like you have to participate in this ritual that elects the ceremonial heads of this national body because people shed their body so that that national body would survive right so there's a very religious transference a substitution taking place there this atonement thing is happening in a national sense right and that and so when you see like folk christianity put those images together i stand for the flag and i kneel for the cross and jesus saves my soul and the soldier saves my name these these kind of like there's a perversion of christianity there but there's also if we're going to be christians we have to recognize there is something christian there too right does that make sense because we don't want to be like the iconoclast that throw things down and say, I I am, you know, I am a social justice warrior and I will stand on top and say that, you know, we have to understand that there's there's the continuity here as well as a breaking point, right? And that is important because we have to be able to meet people where they're at. We can't just yeah. go in there and say, oh, your words are wicked and you're a killer and you're a murderer. And it's like, that's not how the Bible does it. You know, the Bible no. has this conversation between do we sacrifice? And do we go to war? And what do we do when we're occupied? And, you know, like there's a conversation going on, right? And it's, there's a lot of paradox in the Bible. There's a lot of tension that's left for you to wrestle with yourself. I mean, the name Israel is wrestle with God. So it's like, that's kind of the point is like, you've got to wrestle with it. If it's all a flat text, with no dialogue and tension within the different narrations, how's there any wrestling? You just submit. That's Allah. That's another religion. We're dealing with wrestling here. We're not dealing with just, you know, dominant submission. That's another story. We're dealing with wrestle with it. (laughs) That's a different story.
0: And And that's that's something that I'm
2: working on right now. We're wrestling with it as a society.
0: Yeah. That's something that I've said in the past is that, you know, if you're not wrestling with God, you're not doing the work Mm. and you need to do the work. You need to do the work. Um, One of the things that I want to say, though, is I would say that if you were going to find an American soldier who was the most Christ-like that I can think of, it's got to be Desmond Doss. Yeah. What an incredible—have you you watched Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's a really good movie, yeah.
0: I cannot recommend Hacksaw Ridge more. What's funny about Hacksaw—we talked about this with, I think, Elias a couple of weeks Um, ago—but— the beauty of hacksaw ridge is that they had to remove certain elements from the movie because even though they happened they were un- too unbelievable for the audience to take wow yeah like it's it, this is a man who was a pacifist who went to war to protect and help and be the medic of the people who got hurt regardless mm-hmm. of what side they were on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is christ like yeah
2: it's interesting to look at Mel Gibson's body of work and to see him like become more and more he's wrestling with violence or Christ like love. And you see it kind of in a trajectory in some of his works. Like you look at Braveheart and it's more of the classical, um, you know, we've been, we've been hurt, we've been oppressed and it's time for us to get revenge, which is there's an attractiveness to that. I mean, we're not above that. We feel Mm -hmm. that. I mean we don't know what it's like to be in that context like we live in a different way most of us in terms of that deep level of brutality that people can be subjugated to in history.
1: I think that's why they talk about um forcing a peaceful man to draw his sword because when that happens the sort of violence that gets unleashed is like 10 times anything that a, a common brute could ever right. hope to right. achieve. Yeah. Like or like they're, like, they're... like
0: Dr Who said demons run when a good man goes to war. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's right. A different... And there's wonderfully wonderful sentence
1: (laughs) there's something to be said for that um that violent nature can be at times necessary to protect innocent life and so we do see this. we do see this like sort of righteous fury and we respect it and we want to emulate that and uh make that part of like what we're um imitating you we always believe Go
2: ahead, if sorry. someone picks up their arms and they go off because they're worried Japan or Nazis are going to invade them, I mean, you can talk about the, you know, the counter history of, you know, FDR knew it was going to happen and all that, but that's not what the person in the moment is knowing. They're doing what they can to defend their country from being uh, you know, harmed. And so there's nothing it's not, it's you know, we can't condemn these things, right? There's there's a self defense that I think yeah. I'm not a pacifist. I believe in nonviolence, but I think nonviolence is different from pacifism, right? In my understanding of nonviolence from a Christian perspective, that would mean no aggression and no vengeance, but there's a place for defense. Of course, that's a tricky thing because everybody justifies their aggression by saying they were doing it in defense. So it kind of leaves it in this kind of complex area, right? But
1: The the scapegoat formula doesn't work if you believe that the scapegoat is... Innocent. It, you you cannot function well, that way. Our brains don't work that way.
0: And we fetishize violence. Mm-hmm. Like let's not oh, sure. let's not go past the 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 modern or postmodern concept. Like we we watch we watch Braveheart for catharsis. Right. We and watch even, she, The Patriot for catharsis. Right. Because and he but
2: he's showing, it. Yeah. And he's showing, but he's showing some of the victims' perspective by showing. The deep pain of William Wallace being tortured. So he's doing right. some gospel there, right? Uh, because he's showing the pain of the victim. Uh, incidentally, that you know, there's history of that thing. They they put his limbs and stuff surrounding the city of of London. You know, yeah. Of he was William hanging, Wallace,
0: drawn, and quartered.
2: Which again, again, I'm trying to show you. That's that's you can see the vestige of that tracing back to cannibalism, right? And this idea of remembrance of remembering the body back together that binds us together. So at that point in history, the sacred had been so desacralized to that point that they're not calling William Wallace this god. They're they're saying he is this legendary figure. So it's legend, not god, right? This legendary, harder than life. So I'm trying. There's a you've got to see the fossil record of how people of how human culture is preserving itself. Yeah, and and
0: contextualizing way
2: from the sacrificial violence, and it's going to a new form. So when you look back at different periods of history, you can see mythology still wrapped up to some degree versus realistic portrayal of the truth. And mm-hmm. that realistic portrayal of the truth is because of the gospel infection relative to that cultural moment for that society. For for example, uh, uh, Gerard points out uh, the, the story of Apollonius of Tyana, who was a myth maker that a lot of people like to compare to Christ, as the pagan version of Christ at the time in that in that uh, Greco-Roman world, and there's a lead, there's a story of, of, of Apollonius of Tyana, who is this miracle worker in Ephesus, and they go to and the story starts off that Ephesus is in a plague, and Apollonius is called to make this thing right. He goes there and um, he's he he sees this group of this crowd of people, and he and he sees a beggar, and he's and he's this beggar. This is happening underneath the statue of Hercules. And and he says that beggar is the problem. That's the, you know, the monster. And the text says that the crowd has some hesitation at first. They're like, why? It's just a poor beggar, right? So this is a little bit, this isn't contemporary with the gospel story starting to spread in places like Ephesus. This is right around Jesus' time when the revelation is starting to percolate. So in the text, you see the crowd is like a little bit hesitant. This is a far cry from earlier mythologies where it's primordial chaos and Marduk, and it's all mythologized. It's all symbolized. Now we're like, oh, it's a crowd. It's a guy. There's a Mm -hmm. plague. So the plague is a sign of of myth, myth. That's a piece of myth because it could be just social tension that's reported as a plague, as a symbolic representation of social tension. So there's a little bit of piece of myth there, but we're getting some gritty realism. There's a crowd, they're a little bit hesitant, they're not really to kill this guy. And he's like, "No, look." And so they the the beggar, he's blind. He looks up, he looks into their eyes and they see a hellfire energy coming from his, his eyes, the text says. Mm-hmm. Right? So we as modern readers, we're like, "No, that's not true." Right? <laughs> Why don't we have that same suspicious with suspicion with Oedipus Rex? We created an entire psychological foundation of the modern world with Freudianism around a fricking accusation, just like the accusation of Apollonius of Tyana making against this poor beggar, right? You see what I mean? It's because it's more mythologized, it's more pre-Christian. The Christian context is already starting to eat up the narrative's ability to conceal the violence. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You read it and you're like, okay, so they see it, they're a little bit hesitant. Then they look in his eyes, they see hellfire energy, and now they start to throw the stones. They throw so many stones, the text says, when they looked underneath the stones, he had transformed into a hellhound from the the underworld. So so now we see this. So Gerard says this text is like a transitionary fossil between one animal to another, right? Because you're seeing the pre-Christian would say it's a hellhound all the way through. This more post-cross event, text has enough modernism to kind of demythologize the trappings of myth so that we see, no, it wasn't a monster. It was a person, but somehow transfigured back into a monster once the sacrificial lynching was complete. So you can kind of see within a piece of text, a transition between the pre-Christian mythology approach to creating meaning and order in a society versus Mm -hmm. the new order where the Bible is going to undermine the reporting in a way, unconsciously somewhat, that makes the text a little bit more real so that we can now see what's actually happening, right? We can see the dehumanization. The author doesn't see it like that. The author is reporting the story, and it's an earnest story. And it's an earnest story about how the world works. And, and, it, and the text says that the, the plague went away in Ephesus. So the miracle was successful. That's a total opposition to the miracles that Jesus is doing when the, women, the woman is accused of adultery, and he says, who's going to cast the first stone, right? So that's a mimetic contagion of nonviolence that Jesus is using in that story where he's, he's getting each person locked in that hive mind of anonymity and unanimity to take account for the piece of violence that they're going to participate in, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is using social Aikido in fact, he lurks, he looks down. He doesn't lock eyes with him because if he had locked eyes with him, he probably would have ended up like the beggar in the Apollonius of Tyana myth, where he <laughs> looked at the crowd. They saw demon energy in him. They were projecting their own hateful mimetic desire for him into what they saw in him. Right. Just like I said, we meet in a meeting. I act rude. You act rude. I saw you, you know, it's all, it's right. all a the lot. There's a crowd that joined you. I'm in trouble. And I become the beggar who's you know lynched. But the same, the gospel inverts that, and Jesus doesn't go in there like we do, because we like to do our thing. Where oh, you shall not do this, you shall not that. He doesn't go into that story and says, you cannot kill her. You know that's how that non-aggression principle looks like in the way it's applied, and a kind of like, thou shalt not thing. What's that? What's that going to do? That's going to invite and incite the desire more because the law provokes, right? It's like the it's like hot stove syndrome. You cannot touch that hot stove. Well, now I really want to touch it. Uh, you know, and so, so Jesus doesn't say you shall not kill her. It is wrong. You're wrong. What have you done, you cowards. He he averts his eyes so they can't mimetically project their violence into him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't tell them not to do it. He affirms their their uh, desire, but he just deconstructs it. Right. Right. Well, they, right. He's he's joining them, but he's beating them by joining them. He's saying, okay, who's going to cast the first stone? And now they have to think, well, is it you, Bob, or? Yeah, you're pretty sinful, and I don't know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Now you're taking responsibility for the participation in the violence that at that point had been completely, you'd been possessed by it, right? And so that's why, you know, we have to apply that same thing for laws today. Like, are you going to be the one that, like, if you want to force vaccinate people, who's going to, you know, subdue the first kid and forcibly inject them with a vaccine? I guess it's not you, is it? You just want to go along with unanimous consent to allow violence but you don't want to do the dirty work of actually taking account for individually uh, executing your participation and scapegoating and so that's okay. a way that you can use jesus's social aikido in our own context today
0: well and one of the things that i wanted to bring up is that humanity has a thirst for myth and it's something that i've noticed most recently i don't did you see the movie the eternals well, it, it is a a um, movie that's based on the comic books of Jack Kirby. But I found it fascinating because I I listen. If you haven't checked out the Bible Project that Tim Mackey and John Collins do, check that out. It's very cool. But they did a, um, a series of podcasts on ancient cosmology, which has been just great to listen to. But I'm watching this movie, The Eternals, and... What are they fighting but chaos? And what is the name of that chaos? It's Tiamat, which is one letter off from Tiamat, who was the person who fought fought Marduk in the Semitic myths that, you know, I I won't say preceded necessarily, but were uh, contemporaries of the Genesis um, creation account. And it's it's amazing to me because we as human beings thirst for myth. We thirst for the hero that does redemptive violence on our behalf. So we have Thor, we have Iron Man, we have Obi-Wan Kenobi. We have all of these different archetypes of the hero that does violence to save the world. Jack Bauer, I think, is the Mm -hmm. most insidious of them. if i'm being honest um but it's interesting to me because you know without this conversation without looking into some of the memetic theory stuff i wouldn't have seen this and so i'm very grateful for this conversation i'm very grateful that you came on i'm very grateful that you spent at this point two hours with us talking about this Mm -hmm. um but i do think that it is a situation that persists in the mind in the mind of man despite christ despite the christianization of the world which i think has brought the most good that could possibly have come to this world um but what i want to do is you know since we've hit the two hour plus mark i do think we need to wind down to a close um is there anything that you think we've missed Anything. I mean, we can we can do this again. We can yeah. hit some more major points in the future. Yeah. But it, what do you it, think we might get, have missed?
2: I'm happy to answer questions from um, audience members or any questions you guys have to clarify anything I've said today. Um, I would say that the scapegoat mechanism exists today, but not right because it's not it's not right. doing it's a broken machine. Okay. So mm-hmm. we have a bike, but the you know, it's all really messed up. You can't really ride it. Like it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. So if you want to use an analogy, um, so it doesn't work, it doesn't function. Myth doesn't work. It only works in temporary, small kind of schismatic ways. Like Trump functions as a kind of demythology. I mean, they even accused him of, of, uh, incest, which is what the God Kings of sacrificial lore were accused of too. Uh, so they, they <laughs> yeah. you know they call him 45 instead of his name right they call they they mock trump it's Drumph to make to make him feel ethnically other right and different right they you know they tried to bring up that his name was drum for always trying to otherize him to monsterize him all that but it doesn't create unanimity because every time you vilify someone it creates a kind of martyrs mimetic double where people right. rally around that perceived uh scapegoat and they say hey that guy's not what you're saying he's like. Right. And then the other team says, well, he's not a scapegoat. Look what he said about Haiti. Uh, and then you say, look what he said
0: about the, the mentally deficient guy or the handicapped guy. Right,
2: right. Exactly. So they, so that there's a counter scapegoating. So what's happening is the scapegoat mechanism is broken. It will progressively become more chaotic. The more the button is pressed. Like, so every time you hit that scapegoat machine, it's not going to create order. It's actually going to create more schism and more vengeance, more alienation and more people losing their mind. I think that's why people are losing their mind collectively with a mental health crisis, like never before, like school shootings. I mean, that's like an apocalyptic apocalyptic unveiling of the violence of our empire. That's starting to bubble up in these really wicked and horrible ways as people are acting out this, this hidden violence is starting to just, blow up and so the 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 takeaway message is it's not this theory is not like a, um, it has so much fascinating things you can take academically you can go and study literature for the rest of your life in a new way reading great works of literature with a memetic triangular nature in mind you can look at theology and be fascinated with job and read job in a whole new way and psalms and you can go all over that but it has a very timely and apocalyptic, um, you know, takeaway point, which is like right. we have to do our part to rid ourselves of the romantic lie of the desires that we have because that creates scandal. And mm-hmm. where scandal starts, that's where chaos comes. And where chaos comes, that's where the, the cry for a scapegoat, pull, you know, a desire to blame and to kill and to hurt happens. So it starts with you repenting of the, the illusion of your desires that – we end up indulging in and getting into all kinds of problems and becoming enslaved to our passions. Uh, That's a takeaway point from Gerard that has apocalyptic importance in our time. If we don't stop doing this violence and this whole uh, justification, um, the scapegoat mechanism will continue to lead to schism and chaos. So it's, um, it's just a, it's a, it's a very timely message that we have to get out there. I wish you know, Gerard is more popular than ever before. When I first started this, there was nobody doing podcasts about Gerard. Now there's a lot of people doing stuff, trying to make online universities. But the one thing I am a little bit concerned about is that a lot of the people who are trying to t- build on what we've started and popularize Gerard, they kind of downplay the Jesus part, right? right. And I'm like, no, that's, that's everything. And you don't have to talk about it in a theological way. I can talk mm-hmm. about it without uh, you know bringing any kind of spiritual or supernatural as people would perceive it into the conversation and it still has just as much urgency and immediacy as something to reckon with right because I always say if Jesus was just a man it's even a bigger miracle how his personhood yeah. revolution is so much shaping everything in the headlines today I mean you came and watched I watched that Jurassic Park movie the one to, the one that came out before And the the end of the movie is like they're so worried about the plight of dinosaurs that they'd rather let them be unleashed into the suburbs to hurt us than to kill them. Like the sacrificial haunting of the cross is so infected in our imagination that even in everything we do, especially the things that draw the box office the most, are saturated with the question of how do we show mercy instead of sacrifice? That strange Dr. Strange, I saw that new one that came out, and I didn't see the first one, but I saw the new one all of them do the same thing. And I watched this movie. I'm like, that's you know, it's so a and it's got all this demonic stuff and stuff like that. But it's like, even that's their text level, but the subtext is still Christ. Right. Because the mm-hmm. movie, I hope this doesn't bother or spoiler people. I don't really care. But like, cause I analyze these things as anthropological texts, not as uh, films, but when I'm, when I'm talking this way, uh, but there, but you know, the movie is basically dealing with, there's this witch character, who, want, who who is willing to kill anybody to save her children. So she's got this possessive love, right? This is very yeah. much kind of a, a, a pagan, sacred approach to society. I would right. do anything to preserve mine and me and that extension of me and my children. So she goes through and, and kills all these people, it's, and she, and she's trying to kill this particular person. And the other people, the good guys, they will do everything in the world, including lay down their life to save one life, where this other villain, ha- who's not fully a villain because that's how Christian we are. We, we can't make our villains truly villains. They're always, we have to be relatable to our villains. So this villain, she is in such rage of the loss of her children that she'll kill anybody and sacrifice anybody to keep them alive. And the, the heroes are people who are laying down their life just to save one life. Right? So right. They're, not, they're not killing everybody else. They're standing in the way of the bullets to save that one life. That is the Christian story. It's the haunting right. of to sacrifice or not to sacrifice. That's what the Avengers was about. The guy, they're fighting and fighting and fighting, but the war doesn't resolve the problem until one particular figure lays down his life, and that somehow resolves the problem. You see what I mean? And so right. we're so Christian, we can't even comprehend it, <laughs> you know? And so we have, to, we have to follow it or else we, we if the more we resist it, the more we fall into chaos, you
0: know? Right. It's no accident that the magic that um, Scarlet Witch specializes in is chaos magic. It's no accident that in Genesis, we have a polemic against chaos and against violence. It's no, th- there is, there are no accidents here. And I find that fascinating. Absolutely. Um, so like I said, we are at about two hours and 16 minutes at this point. So typically that's when we tap out. Um, but I do want to ask you the question that we do every episode, with the exception of the last episode, because you know when you have return guests, you can only ask them the same question a couple of times. Um, but within the last two years, especially, there has been a lot of chaos. There's been a lot of unhappiness. There's been a lot of depression. And so one of the things that we set out to do when we rebranded from my old show into our show was we wanted to focus on hope. We wanted to focus on, I mean, particularly Christian hope, but hope in general. And so um, those who are outside of Christianity may not point to the same things we do and may just talk about it in the way of white pills. Um, But what, what, is something that you would like to share with our audience, with the people who listen to us, that gives you hope within this chaos, within the world we're living in right now. I mean, it could be personal, global, local, whatever. What's something that keeps you motivated to carry on and do what you do day to day?
2: Well, when you had, when Jesus was walking on earth and he's saying the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he's looking at, um, a te- uh, you know, a, a local, um, place of a theater, uh, or a place of like uh, entertainment. If you went to that local entertainment in that world that he was in, if you were the last, if you were poor or disabled or sick, you wouldn't have the best seat in the house. You know, you'd get the, you know, the worst seat in the house. You'd get the peanut gallery. You'd be. Uh, an advantage point that would not be very interesting. In fact, if you were unlucky, you might be selected for that day's entertainment and fed to the lions if you had a handicap or a disability or a, or poverty or or something of that nature. Um and if you were the first, you were the general and you had the best seats in the house or the you're the aristocratic elites or the governor or the emperor, right? And today, when you go to a theater today, you don't watch actual violence. You don't watch animals tearing up people screaming in agony and people in a group think stupor cheering it on. You see simulations of violence and conflict on a screen and you um, see that the best seats in the house are reserved for the handicap, you know, and they get the best seats in the house and it's a sacred space. It's so much so that the movie started and it's a packed house and that whole, whole the entire row row of handicapped seats are completely open. Statistically, it's impossible for that many more, you know, handicapped people to all of a sudden show up and fill up every one of those seats. You can go ahead and take that seat. It's okay. You can't find a seat in that crowded theater. Just sit. It's okay. The movie's already started three minutes in. You're good. You know, the odds that there's going to be enough that, you know, you need to get up your seat and they still will stay open. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because our culture knows to respect the vulnerable and the weak that much more. 2000 years after Jesus saw his world that he was in and did something about it. Right. So the point I'm saying is that the the fact that we have chaos shouldn't dishearten us because this is the growing pains and the the groans of of a new creation that's being birthed. Right. And um, and people who study birthing know that if you try to control the situation, sometimes it makes it more difficult than if you let. I mean, I don't want to speak as an expert, but just from what I've I have, heard, um, I have five you know, children.
0: I know yeah. this exactly. So I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know,
2: like if you if you kind of like lean into the natural process rather than trying to fight it artificially, um, the process can produce a better thing. And so I, I I say that as a caution to Christians and conservatives to not try to control and subdue the chaos with an, an attempt to use violence in the state. To, to impose order on chaos, right? That's the temptation of the dialectic between the mm-hmm. left and the right. But you have to be able to work with people where they're at and recognize that if the sacred violence is having to imitate and like camouflage itself more and more as an icon of Christ to get away with its act, that's a sign that the enemy is on the run and the, yeah. the enemy is being vanquished because in the old days, they didn't have to hide anything. Yeah. It's like, I have the might, I have the right, screw you I'll do what I want and now it's all of this painstakingly elaborate rhetoric and storytelling and self-justification and media mythmaking to try to paint a christian icon over ugly violence and so that's yeah. a wonderful story because the enemy is on the run he's hiding and he's and every time he hides it falls apart and he's exposed just like the pandemic thing, we thought we couldn't get out of it, And everybody now, most, a lot of people are now realizing this thing was a lot of evil, a lot of violence, a lot of wickedness. And just like the Ukraine thing starts out, everybody's like, let's go kill Russians. The more it saturates, the more the gospel technology gives us different perspectives from social media. And that decentralization of media that the gospel is what enables, by the way, the gospel enables and opens up decentralized media because Whenever you don't sacrifice to solve a problem, you turn to technology as a solution for it. And so as that continues in history, there's this weird, interesting relationship between the gospel opening up technology and then that new media technology being used to show the gospel truth of victims. And so the Ukraine story will start to show victims everything they do. The the elite gatekeepers don't have a monopoly on myth-making. And now we are, we are at this rapid progression of the gospel technology starting to saturate media in this decentralized, de- decentralized environment that's going to open up all kinds of possibilities for peace. So this is not, I believe Jesus is going to save the world and he is saving the world and that he will save the world even in our most ridiculous, stupid mistakes. He's like, oh, you're doing it that way. All right, I'm going to Aikido flip that into a beautiful thing as well. Oh, wow. You're really going to keep doing that. I'll still turn that one. And every time he's got, he's the greatest strategist with the worst team imaginable to execute his plays, but he still <laughs> finds a way to win the game. So it's okay. We'll be all right. Just going to play our best.
0: <laughs> That's great. Um, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you talking to us. I do want to do it again. Like I said, I feel like we could dig into this for infinity for all of the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. It's the greatest um, story ever um i i don't know what you knew when we came when you came into this but we started i started as a libertarian show and we have every episode we become more and more a christian show rather than a libertarian show um because that's i have a degree in biblical studies that's what i'm most interested in like yeah who cares about the rest of it? um but i I love the synthesis between philosophy and Christianity because i mean let's let's be honest, Christianity is a philosophy in a in a big way. um but people seem to see it as like you talked about earlier, this cordoned off area of life religion is is separate from my real life. this is mm-hmm. this is separate. this very gnostic idea um but i appreciate you coming on i appreciate you having this conversation with us and uh i we'll do this again if you're down for it sure um thank you uh but i do want to let people know jessica do you want to say anything before i get into the 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 weeds of where to find him
1: oh no just that um i really enjoyed this but i feel we barely scratched the surface of where we could go in this topic and um, it was a real honor for me to uh, benefit from listening to you talk about this, so I hope we could do it again. I hope
2: I hope that we didn't, you know, the problem with this thing is I, I realize it's, I'm like, I try to get in as much as possible, right? and I feel like sometimes it's too much, but then I'm like, you know, but if I just give it to people, they might hit it, and it might be like too much, but they'll feel like something cool happened, and they'll want to go back and think <laughs> about it more, you know, like... Okay.
0: You just
2: let it all out like an orchestra of all this stuff. They may get lost a little bit dizzy along the way, but they'll feel like that was a fun ride. There's something there. I (laughs) focus focus on like one granular thing. Yeah, I'll really master that thing on your factual knowledge part of you, but did I really intrigue you? But if I give you the full sweep all over of what Jesus is is doing, it kind of makes you like, whoa, I don't know what that was, but I'm interested in Jesus now. All right. Thanks. That's kind of what I wanted to do. So
1: that's very, uh, very much what happened to me. I heard um, your episode with Bob Murphy in early 2019, and that was just at the exact right moment where I was ready to hear something different than sort of like the um, primary narrative. Mm -hmm. And so that I I really appreciated it. And it, it was just, it's just amazing to, um, have the opportunity. Um, I feel really blessed to have been given that little bit of insight. Like you said, just that little spark of a thing that could send you off studying. Mm-hmm. And um, definitely if you've listened to the end of this episode now out there in podcast land, check out the five part series on YouTube, the CBC interview with Rene Girard. It's wonderful. It really gets into the depth and the, more of the nitty gritty of some of the stuff that we, we touched on tonight. So.
2: You can't Uh, beat that French accent. I don't have that.
0: No,
1: (laughs) it's wonderful. Yeah.
0: One thing I wanted to mention, piggybacking off of what Jessica said, is that I was listening to an apologist the other day. And I loved what he said because he said, God doesn't need me to defend him. What my job is, is to say a single sentence that causes another person to research. It causes another person enough curiosity to follow the path that leads them to Jesus. And I think that that's beautiful. And I think that that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what this show is here for. Cause sometimes we have irreverent shows. Sometimes we have shows that have nothing to do with Jesus, but there's always a mention. There's always something and it has borne a small amount of fruit and in the future i hope it bears great fruit Mm. if but if it's just that one sheep the one that is left over from the 99 that are found i'm happy with what we've done um but like i said sorry uh not to talk about myself too much um but i appreciate you coming on and i want to let people know where they can find you so for one and you can add to this list i try to to find out all the cool things that people can go to so that you don't have to add to it, but I expect you will have to. Um, but if you want to follow David on Twitter, you can follow him at David Gornoski, uh, which is on the screen. If you want me to spell it for you, it's at David. You can spell that. I believe in you. And then G O R N O S K I. And also you can check out his show, uh, online at a Is there anything else you want to share with them? Well, that's perfect.
2: I mean, you can, I've got articles I haven't written in recent times, but I've got articles explaining. um, You just search for my name on search engines and different sites, Daily Caller and Town Hall and Newsmax and Lou Rockwell and Fee and all kinds of places. That's where I started first is writing articles about this stuff. But there's a lot of archives out there that can kind of give you some essay forms. If you don't want to read a whole book about mimetic theory, I've tried (laughs) to take it and, And apply it to the political context of our time.
0: I'll be honest. I appreciate that approach. Because I didn't have time to listen to the Rene Girard Mm -hmm. five-part video. And I tried to do some of the explainers that were on YouTube. And so many of those people are awful. Like, I got so bored listening to them. So I'm glad you're out there to help people with that.
2: I try Um, to make, I try to take these ideas and make it so that, people from working class backgrounds can understand something and, and use it and benefit from it. Because, I mean, Many I can, you know, we can live. talk in a hoity-toity way, but that's really not going to help anybody in the real world, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's awful when they try. I, I yeah. mean, I'm, I have a degree. I yeah. read constantly, but I swear to God, some of these things that I, I tried to watch, I was like, yeah. you need to learn how to tell a story, dude. Yeah. Because if you don't do it with story, you're not going to grasp the people who need to hear it. Exactly. Um, but be uh, beyond that, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, I'd love to do it again. Sure. So we'll we'll be in communication. We're now mutuals on Twitter. So that's, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, I'm
2: new on Twitter. I started in last month or whatever. So
1: Run, um, bro, run. Twitter well, is the
0: best.
2: I avoided it all this time because I hated it. It was mimetic on differentiation. I was like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. But. Every other platform, you know, Facebook throttles me. I can't get in my content out there. And, you know, YouTube deleted my channel after all that work. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm doing a radio show. I've got a podcast. I've got to have somewhere. And I'm on some of the other alternative platforms, but it's kind of preaching to a certain choir that I'm still trying to reach people who are not in my whatever, you know, (laughs) cohort of conservatives or Christians or libertarians or whatever. So, I'm like, all right, if Musk is really gonna make this an honest free speech platform, I guess I'll show up and see if 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 this would do anything, you know. So oh. I, I didn't want to go to Twitter. I'm very anti Twitter. <laughs> sure it's like I don't have nowhere I, else. I think it's my Nineveh, you know, where Jonah's like, I'm not going to those places. I hate that place. I'm not doing it. And God's like, No, I'm gonna freaking force you right back because you're not gonna have any other access to any other platforms. So it just Go back over to twitter <laughs>
0: we'll i feel like you would be a great person to talk to about the book of jonah yeah. and how it's a satire yeah at some point because yeah. most people don't know that um yeah. but uh i i will i will unfortunately because i feel like we could keep going jessica's be- past her quote unquote hard stop
1: yeah. i have um, to go i have a early i have an early appointment i've had to go for like an hour <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. I appreciate you. Thank, Thank you, you. For, for doing this. Let's do it again. Let's figure that out. Right. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Take I care. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. So for the rest of you, what do we have coming up? I'm sure that's what you're wondering or you're not because you don't care. And this is the first time you've seen us. Um, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, f- next week, we have Josh Denny coming on who had a show on the Food Network called Giant Food, and he was allegedly canceled. And so we're going to talk about that. He's also a comedian. It should be a good time. That's what we have next week. Right after that, we have a theologian coming on the show called Mark, whose name is Mark Ward. I'm not English, so I won't say called Mark Ward. Um, he wrote a book um, called Authorized, that is a look at the uses and misuses of the King James version of the Bible. We had a conversation about versions of the Bible months ago, and I was left unsatisfied with the explanations and he wrote a book about it. So we're going to talk about that. Um, beyond that, we have our, a, a new friend, uh, named Siren Warner, who is a journalist who is trying to take down a cult called the body. He's on TikTok, and a lot of the stuff he's put out has been very fascinating. Uh, apparently, one of the things he did in order to draw attention to this cult and try to bring it down was to threaten the life of Mitch McConnell. And so who does that? That's interesting. We're going to be talking to him. And then finally, uh, we at the end of every month, what we're going to do is we're going to decompress a little bit. We're going to have a friend on. And the plan that I have, which I haven't discussed with our guest yet, is to have our monthly zoom meeting and game time with this guest who is a friend of the show. And so the end of the month, we're going to be talking to our good friend, Monica Perez, who I love, who everyone loves. And I don't know what we'll talk about, but we're going to decompress. We're going to talk over the month. We're going to talk over what's been going on and we're going to find out what she's doing now that she left the daily drive time news blast. So that's what's coming up in the future. Beyond that, jessica do you have anything you want to throw into the mix there no no
1: good to go all right
0: so if you want to follow me on twitter i am a sassy boy with some blue takes on things you can follow me at ham if you want to follow jessica she's at soup canarchist um, if you want to help us along and to financially support us while we make this show you can go to patreon.com the mad ones That's where you get early episodes. Our episode with Mark Ward will be one that's recorded early. So you'll be able to be privy to that before anyone else. Um, We also have, like I said, we're going to be planning some zoom parties with some cool people. Um, We have a lot to offer. I think, um, so patreon.com slash the mad ones. Um, if you want to get a t-shirt and rep us out in public, we are the mad slash store. You can get a tank, you can get a t-shirt, you can get a mug. Unfortunately, I'm an idiot and I broke mine, but it's very pretty. And my idiocy should not be a part of your decision whether or not to buy one. Um, if you're listening, you can watch every wednesday at 8 30 p.m eastern time on youtube that is unfortunately right now the best way to do it because you can be a part of the the conversation we will bring up comments sometimes like tonight it's a little bit of a heavy conversation so i can't bring up stuff that will be distracting but once we get to a thousand followers on twitter once we get to four thousand watch hours we'll be able to use super chats and those super chats will be brought up no matter what so like us on YouTube. subscribe to us on youtube hit the bell join us in this endeavor um beyond that if you don't like youtube we are also on rockfin and odyssey and if you just want to listen we're on every podcatcher there is or we are the mad ones.com. that's all i have emma did i miss anything
1: not that i know share of. the
0: sh- share the show with your friends we have some great shows i think we have some great topics we've hit. we talked to a guy who um, is an embalmer and a um, autopsy tech, and people have questions about death, and you can share that episode with them. We we've talked to a world-renowned musician, we've talked to all sorts of cool people. So share this show, tweet it, Facebook it, do whatever you can because we we do want to do more. We do want to talk to people who are quote unquote ungettable. Across the spectrum. We want to have interesting conversations about interesting topics in that vein. Please tweet at me, Facebook message me. If you have my, my phone number, tweet, text me and tell me who you want us to talk to. We just want to grow. We just want to do things that edify ourselves and edify you. So let's be a part of this process together. Is that all? That's all. Okay. All right. So as always, my, my, Wonderful friends who sit in here, me and Jessica and whoever we talk to talk every week, you have a chance to be a light in the world. So go light it up.